Welcome back to the Thermo Diet Podcast. Today, we have a returning guest for you all. He brings the energy to the Energy Balance Podcast. He's a registered nurse, a U Miami graduate, and he's currently living in the Philippines. Mike Fave, how are you doing today, Mike? Great. appreciate you guys having me back on. I've been looking forward to coming back on. And I think today's topic is going to be pretty exciting digging into, I guess I'll announce it before you, fat loss. <laughs> um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm excited to talk about, I've been listening. I always do some research before the podcast and I was listening to you and Jay, I forget on which podcast it was, but it was, oh, on Ben Greenfield's. And it's always refreshing because none of those topics to me were anything like new, but you guys are just so good at getting your point across and like really being uh, let's like well-spoken with how you portray the points to make it make sense to the average individual. It's always refreshing to hear your take or how you explain something. I mean, we try our best. It's, <laughs> I know sometimes I've had people tell me like, I need like you to take it down like another level on for some of the research stuff. Um, but I try to, or both Jay and I, but I, I'll speak for myself. I try specifically to like give analogies that make it make sense. Cause for me, I think about it in terms of analogies mm -hmm. as well. I think that's the best way to understand it because the actual research terms, unless you know what they mean, don't like the symbols aren't there for them for a lot of people. So the analogy, I think, is more helpful. Yeah. It, and it's I guess the different analogies work for everyone, you know, but it is I think it's so useful to have the analogies. Yeah, I mean, people understand cars more than they understand, like some diagram of the mitochondria. Yeah. So like it's easier to break put it into like some type of symbol that makes sense. But yeah, we're always, we're always trying our best to, <laughs> to make things a little bit more understandable and take it out of this like heavy research lingo. Well, it shows. So uh, before we dive in, uh, you're now in the Philippines now, everything going well. Last time we were talking, you were no longer becoming an RN. You're not nursing anymore. So I am an RN. I'm not, I wasn't in school. I was working as an RN. Uh -huh. I've been, I worked in the hospital in different positions, whether ICU, step down, med surge, all there's different roles with nursing, but I worked through a multitude of them over the course of the six years. And then I recently in February, um, I was, was doing travel contracts during COVID. So I was going, like I was in Texas, I was in Arizona, uh, I was in New Mexico, New Jersey, Florida, all different places. And then I finished the travel contracts in February. And then since then I've kind of been traveling and I recently got married and all that type of stuff. So that's, I had a bit of a hiatus on my, <laughs> thank you, mom, my YouTube channel, but that's, that's why. And then now I finally settled in, um, I'm in the Philippines for now and yeah, I'm going to start pumping out more content, getting things going again. I'm excited. Are you doing nursing over there as well? No, no, not, not anymore. Um, nice. I'm doing, I'm like full-time with my one-to-one -one consulting. Uh, when I was working as a nurse, I was working full-time with consulting and then I was working full-time with nursing. And then I just basically, the hours I was working as in the hospital, I shifted over into clients and then I just increased my, the number of people I could work with and things like that. So now I'm full-time into this and producing content and all that type of stuff. That's awesome. All right. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. <laughs> you guys have great products. So everyone go hit up Mike if you need any help. He does some great one-on-one -on -one coaching. Um, so, so Mike, what is the sweet spot as far as body fat percentages? We don't want to be too high. Don't want to be too low properly. What do you think? Yeah. So I think that's a, that's definitely a good place to start out for this fat loss conversation because there's, there's like what is portrayed in general, as far as what is optimal body fat percentage and and the, the current mainstream now in the culture, like it's all over the map. You know, if you're in bodybuilding culture, 
sub 10% year round. But if you're in like mainstream culture, there's questions around fat shaming and whatnot. So I don't want to come at it from a perspective of, you know, what do I feel? What is my subjective opinion about it? But like from a health standpoint and coming from the research, what are we looking at? So some of the studies that I looked at to kind of get this answer for myself in general and whatnot was looking at relationship between body fat percentage and all cause more or, or total mortality. And so like likelihood, so they would look at body fat percentage and then see, you know, down the line, you know, when did these people die and what people die? What, what was their body fat percentage? What was their body composition? There's in the research, they look at BMI, which is a relationship between your weight and your height. And it's not perfect BMI, but it's easier to do than body fat percentage. So a lot of the studies are around BMI, but there are some studies that have looked at body fat percentage. And essentially what you get is for males or for guys, you're seeing around less than 20% body fat being, you know, that's where you're starting to see a decreased risk of mortality, um, up to about 10%. And the 10% wasn't the cutoff in the mortality studies. The 10% is in other studies where you're starting to see negative effects on metabolism and hormones and things like that and immunity. So if you, and and again, there's going to be some variance. We're talking about averages, Mm -hmm. you know, some people are going to be naturally leaner than others. That's just how things go. But overall, you know, you want to be less than 20% body fat as a man. And we're talking about from health as a bodybuilder and all that stuff. We can get into that. That's a little bit different if you're going to step on stage, but from a health perspective, less than 20%. And then you want to be maybe at the lowest around 10% on a consistent basis, depending on, you know, your, your predisposition towards weight, uh, towards holding body fat. And then for women, what we're looking at is about 20 to 25% was the for women was associated with the lowest mortality and then um the in terms of like the leanness at about 12 to 14 percent in some of the studies is where you start to see women get significant hormonal problems uh, adjustments to their mood adjustments to like a whole litany of their fertility all these types of things so really the for a health perspective for women you're looking 20 to 25 and then for men about 10 to 20. And then in the, the association, they were seeing like 20, like you had less than a uh, one per, it was basically, they look at the association and one would be like your risk. And at 20%, it started to decrease. Um, and the lower you went, they went down to 15%, the better and better it got. So for a guy, it's probably better to be leaner, maybe 15 or, or low would be ideal. But if you're 20 or below, that's you're still in a healthy range. So those would be the healthy areas we're looking at with body fat percentage. That's interesting. I would have thought there would have been more of a difference between like the low men and low women because women tend to just hold more body fat. Yeah. So with women, the optimal really seemed to be about 20 to 25%. Okay. And then the, the, the 12 to 14% that I, uh, was mentioning was that's where you really start to see for a lot of women, hormonal problems coming in. And the research for the 12 to 14% was looking at female athletes and then seeing what's going on with their, their cycles and their, uh, their ovulation and their hormonal profiles and things like that. And about that period of time or about that range of body fat percentage, you're starting to see things take a nosedive, uh, losing your cycle, lowered estrogen, lower testosterone, increased cortisol, lower thyroid hormones, specifically T3. You're seeing all of these changes when body fat starts to drop. And it's, it's, 
in part because of having too low of body fat, but it's also in part of what are you doing yeah. to get to that body fat level. And then something I want to mention, um, it's a little bit tangential, but also important to keep in mind is that at the low end of, so for BMI, when they look at BMI, again, this is looking at your weight relationship or ratio between your weight and your height at really low BMIs in the research, they're actually seeing increased risks of mortality. And then at really high BMIs and really high body fat percentages, they're seeing increased risk of mortality as well. And what can explain that? So there's a couple of things. So critical illness or like chronic illness can lead to a loss in muscle mass. And so you can get like, you know, you can get a profile where you are just like wasting away essentially. And so you have low fat, but you also have low muscle mass. You have sarcopenia. And then that is also associated with, you know, not, not good outcomes. And on the opposite end, really high body fat percentages and like really strong amount, large amounts of obesity uh, are associated with tons of negative health problems. So there's really actually like a Goldilocks range in the center that you're shooting for. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to be too low on one end and you also don't want to be too high on the other end. Yeah. It's like a bell curve probably. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, and a, a lot of this research is probably a little bit skewed, as you said, on the lower end, especially because, you know, maybe if you were at, let's say 6% body fat naturally and you just, you know, are let's a genetic freak and you just hold that, it might be fine. But most people are, you know, are kind of killing themselves to get to that low body fat percentage. So it's kind of, you don't really see a lot of people walking around. They're just absolutely shredded without trying. I'd imagine on both ends, right? Yeah, this is, this is, we're talking about averages. We're not mm -hmm. talking about exceptions to the rule. We're not talking about, you know, the genetic freaks out there, the huge outliers. This is take, this is saying like for your, for the general person, what would, you know, what are you looking at in terms of health and body fat percentage? Um, and again, it's all, this is from a health perspective for, I know a lot of large part of your audience and some of your focus is related to bodybuilding and lifting in those circumstances, that's a different goal. Mm -hmm. If you want to get to super low body fat percentage while with, for like bodybuilding shows and things like that, without using exogenous hormones and whatnot, there is an, a uh, health risk associated with that, but it's, you can recover from it. The research is showing recover from it. The thing is, is the recovery time periods are a lot longer than I think people like to recognize. So as an example, in female lifters, they had them go on a cut um, in one of these one of these papers. They had them go on a cut and essentially they lost. A, they maintained a ton of lean mass. They really didn't lose much lean mass because they had them on a high protein diet and on top of resistance training. And then they lowered carbs and fats to get them to lose body fat. So they maintain most of their lean mass and they just shred their body fat. The thing that wound up happening though, is they had lowered thyroid hormones, specifically T3. They had lowered estrogen, lower testosterone, increased cortisol levels or adjusted cortisol levels. And then their leptin levels, which is another hormone were like tanked. And then essentially on recovery, a lot of these things improved, but it took months mm. for things to get back to where they were baseline. So you can go and run these shows and do these different things. But if you're doing like, you know, like multiple shows per year, you're cutting down multiple times per year and you're losing a lot of body weight, a lot of body fat specifically because the goal, the frame here is weight loss is what people use as the term, but you really, we're not looking at weight loss. Most people want to maintain that lean mass for fat loss. So with extreme fat loss, you have, um, 
you have these metabolic aberrations and it takes time for the body to recover. And something we can get into as well is that that recovery period, that period of time after you have these metabolic aberrations does set you up to be in a state to recruit body fat really fast. If you don't do, if you don't do it appropriately, you're saying after. So you need to rec- Yeah. So say you lose a bunch of weight and then, you know, you step on stage, you look great, whatever the deal is when you are recovering from that, um, from that heavy weight loss, your hormonal profile and then adjustments to your metabolism, like your general metabolism, mitochondrial functioning, uncoupling, thermogenesis, all this, all of these types of things, those drastically downregulate. So you're in a situation where you can rapidly accrue body fat if you don't, re- if you don't adjust your diet and your intake appropriately. Um, so that's something else to keep in mind. And that, that can explain a lot of people go through these, like the yo-yo dieting stuff can actually set people up to gain excessive amounts of body fat in the long term, despite losses of body fat in the short term. Interesting. So what I believe you're saying here is basically that as you go to these lower and lower body fat percentages, you have to continue probably cutting calories among, uh, you know, fat, pretty much among fat and carbs. And that's going to downregulate your metabolic rate over time, which is going to be a stress on the body. Versus theoretically, if you could just maintain a high metabolic rate and you naturally had a low body fat percentage, it might be a different story. But the issue is then when you add these calories back in, your metabolic rate doesn't just go back to normal. You know, it takes time. So you end up adding a lot more body fat. And so that's where all the stress hormones coming comes from being too low. What about on the other end? Where do you think that we start to see when you get to that above 20% that you start to see this down regulation in, I would assume, metabolism as well, but maybe from a different side? Yeah. So on the upper end of, so there's a couple of things to put in mind or to put in place first. If you, so say you're on like a whole foods diet, like a good quality diet and you're healthy, you don't have metabolic dysfunction, all of this type of stuff. Say that's our context that we're starting with. Mm-hmm. If you overeat on that context, you will most likely gain body fat and probably other tissue as well. But you, it's unlikely that you just become obese that that's less likely because there are mechanisms that will basically, you would have to actually try to become obese in that perspective. So there, there's two different perspective. There's two different places of I'm eating and I'm becoming obese and I'm not even trying to do it versus like, I'm really trying to overeat to like put on tons of tons of tissue. Mm-hmm. And so on a health, on a healthy person, whole foods diet, you can gain body fat, but you're probably not going to become obese. Maybe you move into overweight territory, but you will become, you'll be satiated and you probably won't, (laughs) you won't be able to eat enough to reach like an obesity level. Like things will tap out now. And the, the other thing that goes with this is where you store your body fat is also extremely important to understand. So in this healthy person, they're probably going to store a large portion of their body fat subcutaneously. So that's going to be like under the skin, all over your body, on your, on your arms, on your legs, maybe some around your abdomen versus in a metabolic dysfunction state, you're probably going to store a ton of body fat in your belly. So that's your visceral body fat and visceral body fat has is strongly, strongly associated with mortality, high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, high, uh, all heart disease, all of these different things. So those are two different profiles. In the person who's overweight, you probably won't see drastic down regulations in their metabolism. Um, this healthy person, you'll probably see a tick up in metabolism. So their metabolism will increase their adaptive. So thermogenesis will increase just from an increase in thyroid hormones because you're in a caloric excess. Um, and then your satiety mechanisms will basically 
probably bring you back under control. Uh, in the and now having some extra body fat and whatnot for guys or, or in these different circumstances, maybe that will increase aromatization because the fat tissue expresses aromatase. So you may see things like that. But overall, I think that that's less of like a massive metabolic aberration. And I think that that's much more easily correctable. Mm. And a person who actually has metabolic aberration and they're like holding tons of body fat, a lot of visceral body fat, maybe they're obese, all of these different types of things. There's adjustments in metabolism. You're right from multiple factors. So there's changes in glucocorticoid or the stress hormone signaling, cortisol signaling. There's adjustments in the ability to utilize uh, carbohydrate to oxidize things effectively. There's changes in sympathetic nervous activity. There's adjustments in circulating endotoxin levels. And so, and that's the toxins coming from the gut. So in that profile, there's multiple aberrations going on that are working to adjust metabolism. And so what I want to dig into here really quick, or just the, the nuance piece is that in that circumstance, this person who has this metabolic aberration, who is becoming obese is not doing so because they're just overeating and that's making them put on tons of weight. They have damage to their metabolic machinery they're the, and they're unable to actively effectively take the substrate and convert that into energy. They're, what winds up happening, in, especially in obesity, is, or the theory behind it is that they are taking the substrate, the carbs and the fats, and then maybe proteins being converted to carbs, something like that, but mostly carbs and fats. And then they are just shuttling the carbs and the fats, the, the carbs are turning the fat and then they're shuttling it into fats, into your, their fat storage instead of actually oxidizing it for substrate. So they may actually have a lower metabolic rate and they're able to gain weight on the significantly less calories than this healthy person who's like, I don't know if, if you've experienced it, but for me, like in order for me to get over 200 pounds on a regular basis on my current diet, I have to really try. Like it's a, it's a full-time job to maintain. I'm at 205. It's mm -hmm. a full-time job to maintain 205. I have to make sure I eat four meals a day and I have enough fat and I have enough carbs and my protein is solid. And I don't play basketball seven days a week and top of lifting and all these types of things. Like it's a, it's really like a, a job to do and I have to manage things appropriately. That's very different from clients that I work with who are like, I'm eating 1500 calories and 1200 calories a day and I'm just gaining weight. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't, I can't eat less. Like how do I eat less? I'm, I'm a five foot 10 dude and I weigh 300 something pounds. Yeah. How am I going to eat less calories? <laughs> well, the issue so, is not yeah. marathon running and doing keto, right? <laughs> it, well, that's yeah, exactly. That's the solution. They just, it's all the carbs. <laughs> yeah. No, I think, so what I found actually is I had a really hard time getting above 200 and then I got to 205 the year after. Um, recently I've actually had, I've been able to gain weight a lot more easily. I think I was just probably because I was just absolutely slamming food, but now I'm trying to get to a weight that's like a healthy maintenance weight and kind of just like gradually go up. I think I probably, you know, damaged my metabolism a little bit from doing huge cuts and bulks and kind of overdoing that. Yeah. I don't want to just chill out. But, um, I think what you said was, makes a lot of sense and what I wanted to pick your brain on. So you said the aromatization part, which is for the listeners, the conversion overweight people may have a significantly, they may aromatize more testosterone into estrogen as a result of the increased fat tissue because the aromatase, the enzyme is expressed mostly in fat tissue. Do you also think that the increased obesity could be in our society today could affect the metabolic rate as a result of like plastics, environmental pollutants, potentially heavy metals that are also tend to be stored in fat tissue, correct? So I think, um, 
I think that the the plasticizers are a huge problem. As far as like heavy metal content of food, uh, depends on what you're eating in your diet. Like what's what really gonna push that? I think that's probably less of an under of an underlying piece, but the pollutants and uh, plasticizers are a huge one. Something else I want to mention with the fat tissue. So you have an increased aromatization in the sense that your testosterone is being converted by the enzyme called aromatase to estrogen. And so fat cells have a larger amount of this enzyme. And so if you have a larger or they, they have a lot of this enzyme, if you have a larger fat mass, you're more likely to convert that testosterone to estrogen. So yes, that's one problem. Another problem is that in these obese states, these metabolically dysregulated states, you have a, an imbalance in glucocorticoid metabolism. It's not necessarily centrally. So it's not like you get plasma cortisol from somebody who's obese and their cortisol levels are just off the chain. No, that's mm. not exactly what's going on. What's happening is at the cellular level, you're seeing adjustments in glucocorticoid metabolism. So there's two enzymes. There's 11 beta HSD1 and then there's 11 beta HSD2. And 11 beta HSD1 takes inactive cortisone and converts it into active cortisol. And 11 beta HSD2 takes active cortisol and converts it to cortisone. And so what you see in these, these metabolic profiles is an increased activity of 11 beta HSD1. So you're getting this inactive cortisone being converted to cortisol locally at that tissue. And then that's up changing a whole bunch of things as far as metabolism and increasing propensity to store fat, and, um, adjusting insulin sensitivity, uh, a whole host of things go on with that. And there's actually testing drugs now. Um, they, there's a number of natural compounds that they look at that do this. There's problems because they get metabolized quickly or they're not absorbed well, but they're actually starting to test drugs now that directly block 11 beta HSD one, um, and, or just say, uh, the metabolism of 11 beta HSD two. So you have the cortisol problem, you have the estrogen problem. The other thing that you have is the, in the fat tissue of obese people, you tend to get this like really large amount of inflammatory, um, cytokines from the fat and you get this upregulation of of macrophage infiltration so immune cell infiltration into the fat so you have these increased inflammatory signaling uh, mediators the cytokines then you have cortisol and then you have estrogen and then you also have in obesity diabetes things like that increased circulating endotoxin levels which are the no negative effect on mitochondrial respiration so there's like multiple problems going on and they're all affecting metabolism directly in these people. And it's, again, it's not necessarily because he, like if you're obese or diabetic or anything that you're just a glutton and that you just couldn't control your intake per se, it's you, maybe you, you didn't eat a lot of good food. Maybe you didn't make good food choices over an extended period of time. And then you put yourself in this state and now getting out of it, like digging out of that hole is super hard because there's a lot of things that have to be adjusted dietarily, supplementation, lifestyle wise, et cetera, to be able to like adjust what's going on with the hormonal pathways, with the gut pathways, and then with your energy balance and upregulating mitochondrial function. So that's like a multi-pronged problem. And that's why people I think are finding that eat less and exercise more is not solving that problem. Um, especially like it's that inf that type of information or advice is just too ambiguous to actually help people get the difference that they want with their weight. Yeah. I think you said a good point there that a lot of these people, like they're not gluttonous, they're not just lazy gluttons sitting on the couch eating all day, but they could be eating a ton of the wrong foods. And over time that could have a cumulative effect in 
damaging their metabolism or mitochondrial rate, which could cause them. And I would say like all of what you said is probably like a feedback loop, right? Like, so maybe you gain some tissue and you have a little bit more estrogen that estrogen causes you to upregulate more cortisol and then it goes to the gut. And now you have a little bit more of the endotoxin leaking through. And now it's probably gets harder and harder and harder to get reverse out of that. When the human body works, it works really well. That's why people are like, oh, when I was 20 years old, I could plow through whatever I wanted to and I never gained any weight. And then boom, I hit 30 and I just gained like 50 pounds. It's like you like build up all of you, at least in my experience, you accrue all of these insults to the system. And it's like things that you're doing consistently over time, you know, minus getting hit by a car or something like that. Like, obviously that's a very acute situation, but a lot of these like chronic disease things are a are a function of like accruing things over time. And in the system, just like at a certain point, just kind of breaks down in response to all of these things that went on, whether chronic uh, lipid peroxidation, gut microbiome dysfunction, hormonal dysregulation, and all these things start to adjust. Another point I want to point out is that people who are obese or diabetic or uh, have high risks of heart or high incidence of heart disease and things like that, they likely are going to be spending a lot of time on the couch and be tired But again, it's not because they're lazy. It's because their metabolic function is poor. And so they're not going to have that same level of energy to do these different types of things. And that's why when you look at certain association studies and it's like, oh, people who are more likely to walk X number of steps per day and yada, yada, or exercise this amount, like they're healthier. It's like it could be because they're the things that they're doing. And that's likely an effect as well. Like walking is great and Mm -hmm. exercising is great and all that type of stuff. But it also could be an effect of those people are actually healthy enough to do those things. So taking somebody who's super obese and like running a biggest loser style workout on them and then like basically killing them is probably not ideal overall. And then like drastically cutting their calories because you're basically they already have a metabolic issue. They're already not producing adequate energy. And then you're decreasing their substrate further. And then you're increasing utilization. So you're not producing a lot of energy and you're increasing energy output and you're decreasing substrate input to produce energy. And you're still not fixing underlying problems. And a lot of times I think that kind of explains why you see these people inside the, the biggest loser or these different shows, like actually regain the weight on the back end. The other thing is a lot, another thing that's important and maybe we'll get to later on is that the sustain it, like it's not about going on a cut per se for the person trying to be healthy. You don't want to, you don't want to think about, I'm going to be go on a cut. I'm going to change my lifestyle and I'm going to live in a way that allows me to maintain a healthy weight without actually having to like go on a cut, you know, like go do this crazy exercise and then like really restrict calories. And then you lose the weight and it's like boot for the wedding or for, or for, you know, beach week or whatever the deal is. And then you like put all the weight back on, like that is, it's not a sustainable mentality. And as I mentioned before, when you trash the metabolism doing that, you are way more likely to gain weight following that because of the changes in that metabolism and your, your mitochondrial function and all those types of things. So you want to make sure you're like, doing it in a sustainable approach. And there are tons of studies out there basically showing like if you start to go over, particularly in women, a pound per week of weight loss, like you go to more rapid weight loss, that's where you really start to see more aberrations coming on board. You want to have a consistent weight loss approach. You don't want to be like, oh, I lost 50 pounds last month. Like, first of all, it's probably not all fat. A lot of it was probably water weight. It's a lot like when people go keto, they lose all this weight in the first week or two. And it's like, that's most likely water weight because you just went through all of your glycogen because you were eating no carbs. Um, but then 
if you go too fast in the weight loss, you damage metabolism. And then if your deficit for calories and things like that, and we can get into calories as well. If your deficit is way too high, another recipe or your carbs are like way too low or your other thing is if your protein is too low, not only will you just damage your metabolism, you're going to start shredding your lean mass. So if your goal is to lose weight, again, you're not, most people are not trying to lose weight. You're trying to lose fat mass recomposition and, or, you know, lose fat mass, increase lean mass, maintain lean mass, lose fat mass. So you're not going to want to, you need to, you in this C situations, you're going to want to keep protein high. And then for carbs, you want to keep carbs appropriate. And we can get into specifics mm. so that you don't trash your hormonal function over time, particularly leptin and thyroid signaling. What we're kind of getting to, I think there are two main archetypes in terms of fat loss. There's like the average, the healthy person that might want to lose a little bit of fat. So they look at good at the beach that is not metabolically compromised versus the person that is metabolically compromised. And, you know, maybe they're only at 25% body fat as a guy or 30% for a woman and they want to bring it down, back down. Or maybe they're very metabolically compromised and they're, you know, very overweight. And also, the, you know, there's a huge spectrum of that. So if you're in the healthy state, to a degree, you're probably going to have to cut calories, I would assume, at some point. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are on this. but at, I, And then I would like to talk about the other side where maybe you don't, you're in a less metabolically healthy state where you maybe shouldn't be focusing on cutting calories. What do you think? Yeah, so... Okay. So first thing about calories, cause this is like, a this is like the, um, the elephant in the room in the bioenergetic sphere, <laughs> right? Like don't say calories because it, this is an all you can eat diet and your metabolism will just endlessly upregulate. And then you'll lose weight be, because you're just this metabolic machine. Like, <laughs> unfortunately I wish things went like that, but it doesn't seem to play out that way. So if you come from a background of drastically under eating, and then you slowly increase calories, you will bump your metabolic rate up to an appropriate level. That is 100% reality. But there is a point at which you will not just shove more like substrate into the system and it's just going to like endlessly oxidize it or turn it to energy. Mm -hmm. So there is a point where you will start to gain weight. So and the, real quick, I just want to explain to like to the listener, just when he says, Mike says substrate, and you already explained this a little bit, but you basically mean fuel. And when I say calories, probably I should do a better job explaining this. Um, what you're getting to this is like the food that you eat doesn't necessarily get burned all the time. Some of it might get stored and how you utilize that substrate or whether or not the mitochondria oxidize it is basically what's going to play a huge determining factor in whether or not you become obese and whether or not you're metabolically healthy, metabolically healthy person will oxidize most of this substrate to a point versus the non-metabolically healthy would not. So, sorry, is that? No, no, you're good. That's that actually right? a really good point. Yeah, that's a good point. Cause that's, that's what I, that's what I want to get to here is that I guess to start. Um, so first things first. So what is a calorie? A calorie is just an arbitrary unit of measurement. It's a way to quantify food in terms of energy because you can't really quantify food in terms of mass or volume because mass or volume, like it, it doesn't directly correlate to energy use for humans. Right. So like you can eat a pound of kale or you can eat a pound of steak and you would like the steak would have drastically more energy value than the pound of kale. So calories are helpful to allow us to say, okay, like what's the equivalent in terms of energy. Now, what a calorie actually is, is the amount of energy it takes to heat up one milliliter of water by one degree Celsius. So it's super arbitrary. With that said, it's extremely useful. So being able to like quantify food in, in some type of unit that can tell you something about each food that's similar 
is really helpful, particularly in terms of energy, right? Because as an example, like in, in reality, like in everyday life, an orange is entirely separate from a salmon filet. Like we see them all as food, but like in terms of actual things, they're very different food. Mm-hmm. They're very different things in overall. Like they're entirely different things, but calories, we see them as food and then calories allows us to give some type of quantification for them. And then also we can use calories to determine how much do we need to eat on a regular basis. So having these baseline things are super helpful. So for me, I think knowing using calories for what they're made for in terms of quantifying food, in terms of energy, extremely helpful tool. Like I use it on a regular basis with clients, with myself, et cetera. With that said, there is a problem with calories and that's with all these, the mainstream perspective of this thing, trying to paint calories as the be all to end all. It's not even close to the be all to end all. Like using it like that makes zero sense because a a calorie doesn't tell you anything about micronutrient composition, macronutrient composition, hormonal effect, allergens, toxicants, anything about that food. Um, so like to even like think about it just in terms of all my calories is just, it doesn't make any sense at all. Like that's a, you the only way to really use calories is just to quantify food in terms of energy. So that's the first piece. And then, so those other things are helpful to know as well. So like if after calories, you can start to look at macronutrient breakdown, which we can cover micronutrients, plant compounds, irritants, allergens, all of these different things, you're going to want to look at individual foods and understand their whole food profile and then build out a diet that is able to take these different things into consideration so that you're optimizing for whatever your goal is. So that's that's really the way you you use each piece for what it's useful for. Yeah. You're not going to look at a food in terms of its plant compound effect and then try to guesstimate how that's going to work with your energetic needs because it's that metric doesn't tell you anything about that. So that's the for diet that's like that and calories that's something to keep in mind. The next piece that that you specifically were discussing is Food doesn't equal calories. So food, and another way to say that is food doesn't equal energy. So you don't just like eat a steak and then it gets turned into energy or you don't just like drink orange juice and it's pure energy. Boom. Yeah. Like it's spontaneous combustion in your stomach. It's, <laughs> it's more that the food has to be broken down into its individual constituents, the micronutrients, so vitamins and minerals, and also the, the macronutrients, so carbs, proteins, and fats. Once the, once digestion breaks those things down, then it has to get transported as be like partitioned by the liver. And then it gets transported to the tissues. And then the tissues, once it gets transported and partitioned appropriately, then the tissues have to actually take the carb protein and fat and use it for whatever it's going to be, whatever it's going to be used for. Right. So maybe the protein gets turned into something structurally, the fat gets turned into energy, the carbs get turned into an energy or the fat becomes part of the membrane, whatever the deal is that it has to be, it has to go into those processes. So with that entire picture in mind, what you start to understand is that if there's a problem in digestion, well, you're probably not going to get all that substrate. If there's a problem in partitioning at the liver or circulation, you're probably not going to get that substrate to the tissue. And then if there's a problem at the cell in using those substrates, then the same thing, like you're not going to have the effect that you want. You're not going to create ATP. You're not going to build the structure of the cell. So you can have problems at every single level of that. And it's important to make sure that those things aren't happening. And for in the obesity or these like chronically sick people, 
the the problem is that there's problems in all of the in those steps there's yeah. a problem at the liver there's a problem at the gut there's a problem at the cell and so like just a decreasing substrate doesn't fix any of those problems in a healthy person adjusting substrate is well just you just had an, an excess of substrate and your body push that substrate into fat storage. That's normal. That that is supposed to happen. And you're supposed to have body fat, right? We're talking about what is a healthy amount of body fat. There are amounts of body fat that are necessary. So your body will just store some as fat and that's fine. It's not a problem. Mm -hmm. In the other situation, you're storing it as fat because there's nowhere else for this stuff to go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it can't go through the cell and it, it can't like, you got to just put it somewhere. So the body will just park it into fat tissue to some extent. Yeah. That's not exactly how it all works, but in terms of like just parking the fat tissue, but it's the general idea. Um, and a bit tangential. So yeah, I, that, go ahead. So is like, and I, I know this doesn't really matter. It's not too relevant, but like if you're worried about putting on the excess fat, I think a large part of the fat we're burning on a daily basis comes from our stored fats. Not all the fat that you, not like carbs where it's like most of the carbs you eat, you burn as long as you're metabolically healthy. A lot, correct. A lot of the fat that you're burning throughout the day is pulled from your stored fat versus carbs. It's almost all you're burning what you eat. Yeah. A lot of the, so it, it, there's like multiple ways to think about this. Um, with your substrates, like you have a certain amount of burn rate every day and you have a certain turnover for protein. So you have a certain requirement for protein and you have a certain requirement for energy substrate to actually can create ATP, which is energy. So you're going to have a certain amount of carbs and fat. So at that baseline level, when you're talking about that, you're talking about your total daily energy expenditure. So from the research, that's the the lingo, right? Total daily energy expenditure. There's multiple things that fall under total daily energy expenditure. So there's your basal metabolic rate. That's just the amount of energy that your body needs on a regular basis just to function. That's if you were laying in a bed doing absolutely nothing with your muscle mass and everything that you have right now, that's how much energy you would need. For somebody like your or my size, we're probably looking at 2000 calories just for BMR. Um, for other people, you know, smaller people, larger people, so it could be 1,200, 1,400 calories. For larger guys, it could be over 2,000 calories on a BMR level. So that's something to keep in mind. That's just to live. Yeah. <laughs> so you have an energy requirement just to live. Then after that, you have, okay, exercise adjusted, but not that much. And then you have non-exercise activity thermogenesis. They call it NEAT for short. That is like just your everyday regular activity, fidgeting, moving around, all these types of things that also burns energy. Um, and then there's like the thermic effect of food. So digesting food, you know, surprise, surprise takes energy. You don't just, it doesn't just like go into your intestine. You don't, nothing happens. Yeah. So all of these things take energy. So you're going to have a baseline level of energy need on a regular basis. And then after that energy, so if you're taking in carbs or fat, they can be used for substrate to solve that energy problem. And so if you're staying at that level of need, you're probably not going to just randomly put on excess weight unless other factors are adjusted in that partitioning, circulation, digestion, oxidation stuff. Like if there's problems along those chain. So that's where the idea with calories comes in with those different substrate. And then from that perspective as well, um, even if you go over a little bit, you have room up or down to adjust your metabolic rate through things like uncoupling or thermo, uh, thermogenesis. So like if you're healthy and things are functioning well and you didn't just go on a super hard bodybuilding cut, your cells will burn a decent portion of energy as and create heat from them. That doesn't directly go to substrate and you can actually throttle that up or down a bit. 
So when you people start to overfeed a bit, thyroid hormone increases and then some of the other hormones increase and then you have an adaptive increase in in metabolism, which is that's actually a good thing. On the flip side, you can have a down regulation of those things, which is part of the problems that lead to weight gain after cuts. Um, but then after that, over that, if you eat over those different levels, you will start to accrue body fat. And that is whether it's fat or carbs, it, you likely you're going to start to accrue some degree of body fat over time with that excess. Gotcha. Yeah. I think that was all spot on. So uh, I guess back to the original question. Um, for, we have the healthy individual who may, wants to lose a couple pounds because, you know, it's more days next week and they got to get shredded versus the probably metabolically unhealthy individual. Um, do you think like that to, at some point, the metabolically healthy individual is going to have to basically induce a stress in their body by reducing their substrate intake, their calorie intake, because they're, you know, they're at a healthy body weight. The body doesn't necessarily, it's naturally at a healthy body weight versus the other person. It's they're at an unnaturally high body weight because certain things are broken down in that supply chain and that chain of events that is preventing them from using, utilizing substrate properly. Do you, uh, would you agree with like the bodybuilding type? Do you think like there is a way to get down to, let's say like 6% body fat without cutting calories? Yeah. For, if you want to get down to 6% body fat without cutting, like having to cut your calories directly, like you're probably going to have to use exogenous substances mm -hmm. that may or may not be legal. <laughs> but even so like 10%, that's like 10% depends on the person. Like mm -hmm. some people will be able to just naturally function around that level that may be their I don't I hate to use the phrase set point because that's that's like not a good term um because there's some questioning around the idea of like a set point um but they're like some people may live at that level essentially and they can maintain that naturally at like a normal caloric intake not going too high or too low mm -hmm. uh if you do have some excess body fat that you you know you accrued because you went on a bulk or whatnot like if you, first of all, if you stop the bulk, you stop eating in excess and you continue to exercise at a normal level or have your normal activity that you were doing that justified your current BMR, most people will actually start to lose some weight again, just from that by itself. Mm. And after that, you could probably do like, if you wanted to lose more body fat specifically to get a little bit leaner, you could probably adjust calories down a little bit more and by adjusting carbs or fats. And then you could probably lean out a bit and it probably wouldn't be too stressful. Like it wouldn't be that stressful on the system. Whereas if you, the difference is if you're a natural lifter and you need to get to 6% body fat, you're going to trash without exogenous help. You're going to trash your hormones. Like it's not a question. It's going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and then the only thing is like how, how you recover after that is going to be really important in terms of keeping your body composition solid and being able to adjust from there. So understanding calories here is important from that perspective, but there's much more to that picture in terms of, okay, like what do I adjust to adjust yeah. the calorie intake? And then how much do I make the, how much of those jumps do I make? And what am I doing with my activity level as well? Like you you have multiple pieces that you have to figure out appropriately, not just blanket, yeah, just yeah, go yeah. exercise randomly and then just drastically cut your calories. Like that's not how this you're going to break the system that way. And a lot of people do that has to be done appropriately. And there is a way to do it. And the research does discuss this pretty directly. <laughs> so I think what we're kind of getting at here is that if you're in this healthy body weight and you want to get to, and let's say not healthy body weight, a not normal body weight, you're going to have to induce a stress to get there. 
But if you are on the high end and, and you're like you're intentionally inducing the stress because, you know, your body's in a better, you're going to a worse state probably than your body naturally was in. But if you are on this high end, you're metabolically unhealthy, you're actually taking stress off to get to that lower body fat percentage. Is that most, correct? So most people who are in that, are you talking about in the healthy person, right? Or are you talking oh, about unhealthy I, I, person? So the, the healthy person to get to low body fat is inducing a stress. Unhealthy person to get to a good body fat percentage is probably releasing stress. Yeah. So, okay. So there's a dichotomy here, right? So, so saying the healthy person who wants to lose a couple pounds after they just gained weight from a bulk Mm -hmm. or they like went on vacation and they were in Greece and they like just went crazy with the really good food there, or they, you know, it was Christmas and grandma made lasagna, like whatever the deal is (laughs) though. In those situations, probably just reverting back to like a normal intake for them after overeating their body situation and maintaining, like getting back to their normal schedule and whatever their movement and exercise routine was, Mm -hmm. they probably will like come back down and then to like what their normal body weight is. Cause in those situations is kind of an excess. If they wanted to, if they didn't and they wanted to adjust a little bit, they could go on a very, small deficit, very, very small. You don't have to, it doesn't have to be massive or you can just walk or do yeah. something like walk more or something like in the unhealthy person. Most times I actually increase calories in unhealthy people. So say I have somebody who's like, who's obese and they're eating, uh, I don't know, 1200 calories a day. I will run their caloric requirement based on the research using a formula. And it'd be like, Oh, well, this guy, he's probably should be eating closer to 2,500 calories per day, not 1,200. And it's like, he is still gaining weight on the 1,200. Like that's a serious problem. I will usually bump him to 2,000 or somewhere upward, depending on how they tolerate. Cause it's, it's person specific. Some people just don't have the appetite and it takes time to get things back. Cause the stress hormones and all the things and digestive problems crush their appetite. So there's multiple things that go on there. So I probably will bump him up to 2000 calories, just say, just for example's sake. And then they usually start to lose weight, but I don't just increase their calories. That's not the main thing that I'm doing. That's one strategy. That's one lever that I'm pulling. I'm increasing calories while I'm completely changing (laughs) the foods that they're using on a regular basis. And I'm changing macronutrient composition and I'm fixing nutrient deficiencies and I'm targeting things for the gut. And then I, then we're seeing where the chips fall and seeing if then hormonal support would be helpful and things like that. So it's multi-pronged approach. And then also adjusting like what is activity level? What is their tolerance for activity level? And like pulling multiple levers simultaneously. And because the question of like calories, this or calories, that is like, that is literally only one piece of the equation to even think about. There's so many other things that you can do to move the needle for somebody in that situation. And most people I've come, I've worked with quite a few people who came to the bioenergetic sphere after keto, paleo, fasting, plant-based vegan, whatever the deal is. And they have chronic problems. That's why they went on those diets. And then when they came to bioenergetic and they started slamming ice cream, milk, sugar, juices, whatever else. And they gained, I've had people gain upwards of 60 pounds then it's like yeah. I've adjusted their diet so that they start to lose a pound per week. But I've also, in most cases, they get to a point where they're just not even hungry eating all those foods. So then they like their intake is still low, even though they're still pounding whole milk with sugar. It's just they're not eating as much of it. 
and then I'll uh, completely change a lot of the foods and then I'll adjust their macros and calories and all these different things as well. So yeah, that's the calories is one lever. And a lot of times, most people that are chronically sick usually have to go up, but they're still technically in a deficit because they're their basal met their their metabolic rate according to an average like a calculator like like a catch mcardle formula mm-hmm. is having them a lot higher than what they're actually eating yeah so you're not just telling the 1200 person to be uh go eat a bag of potato chips i'd imagine <laughs> no no um, and i'm not even just telling them to focus on calories it's just like that's one thing that okay calories macros yada yada yeah. yada yada all this stuff <laughs> Um, why do you think people at 1200 calories could even potentially be any way when they're eating nothing? Like, you think that's mostly just water retention that they're just like accumulating a ton of water. So for, uh, for some people, there is water problems. Um, especially with like inflammation, a lot of people will hold water weight. Um, but a lot of it is like, uh, it's not like they gained all their weight at 1200 calories. They gained weight over time they have metabolic dysfunction. Their like metabolic rate in general is quite low. And then they've just like settled at that 1200 calorie spot. That's kind of like where, like naturally where they situated themselves and they're still gaining weight because they haven't fixed any of the other metabolic problems. So they're just, they're basically just like slowly suffering at the 1200 Mm -hmm. calories and just kind of getting by with all those problems. And a lot of times like weight loss is extremely resistant. Even if they go lower, like they still won't lose the weight and then other problems will become worse and whatnot. And then the other thing that winds up happening is that they, sometimes they can even just keep gaining weight. And again, this is because it's, this is a metabolic dysfunction. Yeah, This is not just, I ate too much rice and potatoes so I can go over 200 pounds. Like this is there's a lot of things going on. This is usually people in these situations, like a couple of years of messing themselves up. So most people that become significantly, let's say metabolically unhealthy are probably on a high fat, maybe also high carb, low protein diet. Um, and so I would imagine for, in terms of like the bioenergetic approach, you try and probably lower fat a decent amount as you raise carbs and maybe protein as well, getting in from like whole food sources, fruit and all that stuff. But from a keto person, because they're basically driving, you know, they're decreasing their insulin sensitivity by only burning fat intentionally. So what I've always thought as an approach is you would probably almost, you know, like what's the word? Um, Like uh, when you slowly increase your caloric, but you basically like try and get them to burn carbs again. So you might try and increase carbs very gradually. You might only have them on 100 grams of carbs a day at first or something like very low. And then you try to gradually increase that. Has that approach worked for you or what do you find? Yeah. So it depends on the degree of aberration. If somebody's coming from keto and they just have body fat to lose and their body's able to like, there is there, first of all, there's a transition over. So they're going to have a transition over to, um, oxidizing carbs or oxidizing fat. And usually it's a little bit rocky because at first, when you bring in carbs, like maybe you get blood sugar swings. And then since you, when you have the carbs, it takes the stress hormones down. So you stop being this like machine who can just go all day long until they eat and then they crash like that type of stuff adjusts but the other thing is you'll find the first thing people are able to relax once they bring carbs on board the insomnia improves um energy levels become more stable over time after the transition period comes out and then just like hormonal parameters improve like thyroid function androgens and then cholesterol like some people get these ridiculous cholesterol values from being on keto or low carb and it's 
from the amount of fat that they're eating on top of the altered hormonal profile, thyroid signaling and stuff like that, and down regulation of LDL receptor and things along those lines. And so like, I see all of that improve, but there's a transition. So in somebody who's like, doesn't, it's not a diabetic, I would slowly adjust carbs and based on their tolerance and gradually bring them up and keep them isocaloric. Um, depending on, you know, where they're at. So if they're eating super low and I need to bump calories up, I'll bump them up and I'll slowly adjust carbs and then I'll bring down fat. The one thing that I do across the board for people in these different circumstances is keep protein at an adequate level. So that's that 0. 0.6, 0. 0.8 grams per pound. If people have fat to lose, I'm keeping protein higher. 0. 0.8 grams per pound. If they have a lot of fat to lose, maybe one gram per pound. And again, that's to maintain lean mass and have the protein as that anchor for your macros and then adjust carbs and fat depending on tolerance. Because some people really don't do well going to carbs right out the gate when they've been oxidizing tons of fats for an extended period of time. And then type 2 diabetics, I work with quite a few type 2 diabetics coming from these diets trying to introduce carbs again. They are very sensitive to massive fluctuations in carbs. So like slamming 16 ounces of orange juice is a type two diabetic is not going to make most of them feel well, especially if they've been low carb for a while. So usually I'll adjust carb sources. Well, like are we using whole, whole carb sources, whole fruits, dried fruits, things like that. Are we using like juice? That's also going to depend on, you know, do they have metabolic dysfunction? Some people with gut issues aren't going to do well with whole fruits or dried fruits. So context dependent, but yeah, I will just find what is this caloric intake that makes sense based on the research. What's this ballpark that we're shooting for, including activity level? Okay, let's. that's the calories that we're going to shoot for. Protein, what do we know about protein? We know we want to keep a higher protein intake for weight loss to adjust metabolic problems, et cetera. So we'll probably shoot for that 0.8 grams per pound at the higher end and depending on the person, maybe one gram. It really depends. And then and also I have people who have like serious kidney disease from their diabetes or for multiple other reasons. And in that circumstance, like protein cannot stay high. You have yeah. to be very careful. And then you have to also be careful with potassium and phosphorus intakes and things like that. So there's multiple different contexts, but the general rule protein at the higher level. And then you start to slowly modulate fats and carbs as you discussed. So slowly bring carb fats. The problem I see with a lot of people coming in are is like, I'm still going to eat 200, 300 grams of saturated fats per day from butter and from meat and whatnot. And I'm just going to add 64 ounces of orange juice. And it's like, you will probably gain weight doing that. Um, you have to bring, you have to bring fats down. You cannot continue to eat like these really high level fats while you're trying to increase carbs again. So do you have that has to bring down? And again, there's a transition because the, the metabolic systems have to adjust to oxidizing carbohydrate. The microbiome and digestive tract has to adjust because the there are problems with really high fat diets on digestive function and bile release in the liver and all these other types of things. So those those things all have to adjust. Mm -hmm. The hormonal profile has to adjust, et cetera. So like it's a delicate balance and the speed at which is individual con individually um, dependent. So it's like a you have to know the person you're working with and you have to tailor things or the, even the individual has to tailor things to their own context and kind of take things slow and be aware of what they have going on instead of just like, Oh, it's a, cause this is, this is what happens every single time they find the peat diet, right? It's like, Oh, I can have chocolate and ice cream and orange juice and yada, yada, and all this sugar and whatnot. It's like, and then they come from this like super restrictive diet. It's like, I've eaten steaks only for three years straight. And then now you can have all these things. It's like, 
it's a it literally messes people's minds up because it's like it's free for all mode right away and it's like i don't want to i don't want to restrict anymore i'm just so done with it i like have all these problems from whatever and i need to just be free and then that causes problems and then it's it's tricky because then people get in this mindset like oh maybe bioenergetic just doesn't work so i'm going to go back to low carb but then they don't respond well to low carb again and so now they're just like, like in this limbo. That's, mm. this is a common pathway that I see. So yeah, it's a, it has to be done appropriately. There's a lot of different things going on. And when you start to go into the mechanisms, like it makes sense, like yeah. it, it's normal to go through these experiences. I never even thought about the whole digestion pathway and the other like uh, lipid biomarkers that are going to be adjusted in a low fat to a high fat diet or high carb to low carb. That's also really interesting. Um, so one of the things you mentioned was balancing your blood sugar, which, so when you go keto, you basically balance your blood sugar by completely keeping your blood sugar low, by never having any spikes. Uh, and I think a lot of people struggle when they're trying to, let's say, you know, a lot of people struggle with blood sugar jumps and spikes and they get tired after they eat and whatnot. I think part of that is, you know, from endotoxin and eating really difficult to digest foods and maybe eating too much carbs as well, like eating a ton of starches, things like that. But how are you um, suggesting, like what kind of meals are you generally suggesting, like a framework of it? Um, typically, you probably want some some decent amount of carbs, maybe some starches as well, probably sugars, some saturated fat, generally or monounsaturated fat. And then do you throw in some fiber as well to help manage the blood sugar as well as the protein? So a couple of things. Um, first thing is actually having solid meals in the day is super important. So all these people or a lot of people tend to just come and like, Oh, I have milk and orange juice every hour and just like skim milk, orange juice, skim milk, orange juice, skim milk, orange juice. That is not a sustainable or ideal plan digestively, blood sugar wise, weight wise, et cetera. Like that stuff causes problems in my experience. Um, there's also mechanisms to describe it in the research as well. Um, but migrating motor complex, constantly hitting the insulin signaling, all this type of stuff. So you want to first things first is have solid meals in a day, three, four meals a day, whatever works for you, three meals and a snack, things along those lines. Next thing is when you're constructing a meal, if you're going to limit yourself to have three meals in a day and you're, you have certain amount of spacing between those meals, obviously you don't want to have like a huge meal and then an hour later have a meal. You're going to want a couple hours between those meals to allow the migrating motor complex to function, the body to dispose of the substrate that, or use the substrate that you just brought on board. And then also for like your, your satiety to, to like kick through. You want to be eating when you're hungry. You actually want to have the food. That's important. Um, so you want to have the gap. And then when you're situating the meal, you need to make sure you're eating enough so that you last that gap. So when I'm constructing a meal, I'm making sure that the meal has enough of the different macronutrients, carbs, proteins, fat, and then also fiber in the meal so that the individual can last that three or four hours between the meal and they're not crashing an hour later because they had a zero fat meal with a rapidly digesting protein and a rapidly digesting carb source. Now, does that mean that you can't use rapidly digesting carb sources and protein for sources and adjust fat content in meals to adjust times between meals for specific purposes? No, of course you can do that. But from the baseline for somebody who just wants to have a regular daily structure and manage your health and whatnot, yeah, you're having an animal protein source, lean animal protein source, most likely you're having a monounsaturated or saturated fat source, your tolerance, either one of those or the individual's tolerance, either one of those is going to vary. And you get, you figure that out. Then a carb source in the form of either a fruit or a sugar-based source and, or a starch source. You got, you kind of want to have 
either one by themselves or both, unless you really don't tolerate sugars. I have had a client who had hereditary fructose intolerance. So their diet was entirely starch based, which that's still fine. You can just get your carbs from starch. So you want to want to have that. And then, and then I usually always incorporate some type of plant plant source of uh, fiber that also has a bunch of plant compounds. So that could be cooked vegetables, certain raw vegetables that could be whole fruit, dried fruit, things along those lines. So I'm building the meal out based on those factors. And again, making sure there's enough to last between the different meals. Now there's this, I tangentially, um, there's like, I've been, a lot of my clients have asked me about, there's like this blood sugar lady or something online. Blood, I who know. Like talks, it drives me nuts. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, she talks about like adding vinegar and these Glucose different things to the, we don't need to, I don't, I don't know her name. I've never seen her stuff, but this is like, they're at, I get asked about vinegar all the time. So I just want to like mention it, adding a ton of vinegar to the meal. I don't think is ideal overall because while it does adjust glucose disposal, it also may adjust (laughs) your ability to break down the carbohydrates by inhibiting the enzymes to digest those carbs. So like if you want to lower your blood, good, your blood sugar, inhibiting the enzymes that digest the carbohydrate is not the ideal way to do it. The way you want to be correcting blood sugar stuff is you want to have your body be able to utilize the substrate. Well, that is correcting the underlying problem. Um, but as far as like some of the other things they describe, like combining all these things together, yeah, that's great. Fiber and protein and fat with your carbohydrates will all adjust that blood glucose curve. So they'll extend it out. They won't give you this massive peak and they'll keep it much more stable overall. And that does go a long way for people, especially if you're having blood glucose dysregulation or you're coming from low carb to make sure things stay, stay stable, uh, over time. So it's extremely important. It's also important for weight because you don't want to be spiking blood sugar super high, then it's crashing. And then you have to eat something again, and then you're spiking it again, and then it's crashing. And that causes problems for people every single time that, and that's usually like, Oh, I have skim milk and maple syrup. And you know, that's my, that was my meal. And then I, my blood sugar crashed an hour later. It's like, it's a normal response to that type of meal. <laughs> yeah. I think when people, which she might, a uh, glucose goddess is her name. Sorry. I don't want to name names though, but we'll be nice. But, uh, it, uh, this, you don't, you don't want to spike, but you don't want it to be flat either. Like you want a gradient, a gradual curve, right? Like you want it to come up and down. And so then, uh, the other question I had, so I do the Ray P carrot salad, been doing that. I think that helps a lot, but what kind of uh, vegetables are you recommended? Do you do, um, like the, do you care about the, some broccoli and you know, some of the goitrogens in those or? You know, I know you're a huge fan of soy and everything soy, but <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, I do my best to get as much as much uh, cooked and raw soy possible because <laughs> um, I don't care about my androgenic function or my thyroid function. Trying to tank it as much as possible. Yeah. yeah, as low as possible so I can live forever because the lower my metabolic rate, the longer I'm going to live, the less I'll burn the candle. Exactly. I, I'm obviously being facetious for the audience. I don't want anybody to think I'm serious about that. But the... Uh, um. Yeah. So just to your first point, the flat glucose curve over time on like low carb, where it actually starts to like slowly trend up so that people's fasting glucose is like 110 or 105 or something. That is essentially you're just chronically running on glucagon, uh, which is an adaptive stress hormone to keep your blood sugar elevated because you don't have carbohydrate coming in and you don't have insulin signaling to lower that, that production. And as a side note, Type 2 diabetics are characterized not only by insulin resistance, but also by extreme or high levels or chronic glucagonemia. So chronically elevated glucagon levels 
and chronic gluconeogenesis by the liver. So chronic glucose production by the liver. Is that so the high blood sugar? Or not, it's or cortisol, it's glucagon, it's adrenaline. Like there's multiple things going on, but glucagon is the main hormone that drives that. And in rat studies, looking at these things, when they knock out glucagon or glucagon receptors, it literally eliminates or abolishes the features of type two diabetes. So you don't want to be like, you don't want to be chronically upregulating this group glucagon signaling overall. The people are like, oh, but the insulin spikes, it is normal for insulin to raise in response to carbohydrate it's as basically a stimulus saying hey it's a party anabolism where we're building our tissues we have carbohydrate all type all that type of stuff like it is a good thing the dysfunction that you're seeing in type 2 diabetes and all these different things are related that the insulin is chronically elevated and chronically high in all these types of things mm-hmm. because of damage or inability to oxidize the substrate and healthy people the insulin signaling is normal. You got, you're going to want this the up and down in the adjustments. It's not insulin is bad. It's just bad when it doesn't go back down. Yeah, it's bad if you're if you can't use the substrate and then you have this dysregulated uh, signaling and metabolism around it. It's it's that's a lot of the problem. It's not really that like just your body just all of a sudden gets tired of responding to insulin it, or the receptors downregulate. That's not that theory hasn't been borne out in the research. If anything, they're talking about. Um, increased fatty acid oxidation, impairing insulin signaling and glucose utilization, and then or forcing glucose through glycolysis instead of running it through uh, oxidation through the Krebs cycle. So that I know a big research term, whatever, but there's like a lot more going on in that picture than just uh, insulin. And when my bu- I don't want to respond to it anymore. I'm tired of it. Yeah, and vinegar. <laughs> That's it. So there was a specific question you asked oh, me about there. It's and the I, fiber and the vegetables. Yeah. So the vegetables, um, I'm a fan of cooked vegetables. Um, I found that they make a benefit for me, particularly around gut function and microbiome function. However, I use specific ones. So I like carrots. I like squash. I like peas, which is technically a legume. I like beets. I like peppers. I like tomatoes. A lot of these are fruit vegetables and then beets. So I like, and root vegetables. Um, the reason I chose these vegetables is number one, most people tend not to have a problem with them. Number two, they're, they have benefits in the microbiome. Like it's very clear. And then number three, they're low in irritants and toxicants and also FODMAPs. So fermentable substrate. So a lot of people have gut issues in response to these FODMAPs. Um, and they're basically, so the FODMAPs are carbs that we can't digest or sugars, but bacteria in our guts can digest. So if you eat a large bolus of these things, they'll move through the small intestine. They make their way to the colon intact. And then, or maybe the ileum, which is the last part of the small intestine. Mm-hmm. And then the bacteria there, just like, it's like a, you know, it's a, it's again, it's like a field day. It's like, oh, we had, it's a party. We had, who brought the food, who brought the beer? Like <laughs> they have all this substrate. Uh, that they can then like do different things with. And depending on what you have going on in your microbiome, the metabolic products that get produced can be really irritating to the intestine or can cause different issues, brain fog, bloating, gas, diarrhea, all this different type of stuff. Now, some people do well with certain FODMAPs. Like for example, I can actually eat broccoli and cauliflower without bloating or gas and things like that, but I can't eat onions or garlic. (laughs) I have a really bad time with onions and garlic, but other people that I've worked with can tolerate them just fine. So there's going to be individual tolerance to different FODMAPs depending on digestive function and uh, microbiome. As far as the goitrogenic foods like broccoli and cauliflower, 
those I, I wouldn't recommend eating large amounts of them, but I also, if you're going to eat them, I'd recommend like actually cooking them. So if you go through the research, basically what you're seeing is boiling them for about 20 to 30 minutes Mm -hmm. actually eliminates, I think around 87% of the goitrogenic compounds. So you're going to really want to like bomb them, which may just ruin the flavor and taste for people. Um, so yeah, that's something that's something to keep in mind. And leafy greens, raw leafy greens, a lot of people don't actually digest them very well. And then cooked, some of them are either high in nitrates or they're high in ox- oxalates. And some people don't do well with that, and other people are fine with it. So it really, it really is going to depend. But the main ones are the vegetables that I just mentioned, and those are the ones that I usually introduce with clients, particularly people who have gut issues, because if you know they're they're very sensitive, and other fiber sources could be whole fruits. So berries or bananas, if you tolerate them or pineapple or papaya or things like that. Interesting. Yeah. I think I'm going to start trying to do some more of those, like the sugary vegetables. Cause I think, uh, I think it's a good argument that made for the gut health. Cause we do know that this amount of fiber is like pretty beneficial and having some more fiber throughout the day, I think in terms of blood sugar and all the gut health as well is very beneficial. There's a couple things with that. So there's, there's the blood sugar piece, but even more so than that, Bile acids and amino acids inside the colon are no bueno. Like they cause problems inside the colon. The bile acids are irritating. The amino acids can get putrefied or fermented by the bacteria into a bunch of toxic compounds. Um, ammonia, hydrogen sulfide, P-cresol, indole, scatol, all these different compounds. They irritate the colon. They're damaging to the liver. They're damaging to the kidneys. In fact, dialysis patients and patients who have chronic kidney disease are actually a lot of the poisons that build up in their blood are related to some of these gut toxins that aren't getting detoxified on top of the fact that they usually have dysbiosis. So those, and they come from protein breakdown in the colon from amino acids. So when you have enough fiber from these different vegetables on board, the fiber and the plant compounds they modulate the microbiome and they minimize the production of these toxic compounds inside the colon. So in the peat sphere, a lot of people are like, oh, the cold, the, di- the digestive system should be sterile. No, it shouldn't. The, the stomach and the small intestine are largely sterile in comparison to the colon. If you look at pure amounts of bacteria, like there's like mm-hmm. multiple orders of a difference between the colon and then like the stomach and small intestine, like it's basically sterile compared to what goes yeah. on in the colon, but the colon will likely never really be sterile, uh, in any normal situation for humans. Cause even in the hospital, I've seen this a hundred times, even if you bomb the gut with tons of IV antibiotics, like everything you have to throw out the, you will still have bacteria present in the colon. And a lot of times if you completely wipe it out with antibiotics, you start to develop opportunistic infections like C. diff or Clostridium difficile, where the spore forming bacteria that can survive the antibiotics just take up residence and then they produce toxins and it's like diarrhea city for days. Um, yeah. So you want to, you're going to have a microbiome present. And so my strategy on that is modulate it as best you can in the beneficial way. And the best way to do that is fibers from fruits and vegetables and then the plant compounds from fruits and vegetables overall. So that, and then not having like super high fat contents, uh, cause that also can cause dysfunction inside the intestine directly 
because of the metabolism of the fatty acids by the intestine and also bile acid signaling and all and then the effects on the microbiome. So that's another piece. And part of that is also the fiber literally just slows down digestion, right? So there's more time for the stomach and small intestine to break it down before it gets to the colon. Yeah. So the, the fibers mechanism, I think a lot of the fruit and vegetable benefit on blood sugar is not even so much that it's like slowing down glucose absorption. The food matrix component that's introduced with those things do adjust like the the rate of absorption of the carbohydrate in the intestine, but the plant compounds and polyphenolic compounds adjust blood glucose um, utilization directly, either through microbiome modulation or some of the secondary metabolites that get produced from these compounds actually adjust blood glucose signaling directly. So there's like multiple mechanisms by which those things are doing it because even if you just like look at like pure cellulose fiber or something like that, those effects aren't as good as if you had like peas or carrots or squash, like those actually have like pretty significant benefits for the microbiome um, overall. And a lot of the fibers people have issue with are, you know, cellulose is really the insoluble fiber, but are the soluble fibers, right. That are fermented by the bacteria. It's the fibers that people mostly have problems with in my experience are like fermentable uh, FODMAPs. Um, isn't because that soluble they, fiber though? Like it's, isn't soluble. Fiber? No, they're, they're actually different. So the soluble fibers, like that could be like pectin. Um, there's multiple, there's like multiple different types. There's mm-hmm. all different types of fiber. Pectin's one of the main ones that's usually in fruits. That's also in some of the root vegetables that in my experience, um, it can cause some gut issues for people, but not like not like fructins or fructooligosaccharides or inulin or um, what's another one that comes to mind? Uh, the sugar alcohols like sorbitol, those types of things really wreck people because when you have these different even fruits or vegetables, there's not it's not just one type of fiber. So like a blueberry has multiple types of fiber, both soluble and insoluble. It's just a differing proportion. And then even within the soluble versus insoluble fiber camp, there's like cellulose, there's hemicellulose, there's pectin, there's arabinolactin, like there's all these different types of fibers. And so when you're getting these plant, it's it's actually really interesting. I know it sounds super nerdy, (laughs) but when you actually like break it down. It's really interesting because the plants actually have like, if you look at them, even when you're in biology, you look at like a carrot under the microscope, like it actually has a specific structure with the cell wall and then the different components and whatnot. And all of these fibers are part of the, that those different components. And it's like, when you're getting a carrot, you're getting like a variety of different fibers in a particular structure in conjunction with all these different plant compounds and vitamins and minerals, et cetera. So like it's a, it's like a whole thing. It's not just about the fiber of the carrot. Like it's about multiple components of the, of the carrot that have these benefits. And so like you can single out all these different things, but a lot of them come together to have this actual benefit for the microbiome. Um, so it's really hard to just say soluble versus insoluble fiber. Um, cause again, like it's, there's different types of fibers in all of them. If you wanted to go like pure insoluble fiber, I think it'd be like, or yeah, it'd be like wheat bran which may actually irritate a lot of people's intestines versus like eating some kiwis might actually be fine for them. And the kiwi actually would have a higher amount of insult uh, of soluble fiber than the wheat brand. That's really interesting. Yeah. I'm reading, have you ever read synchronicity, the book by like RFP? No, I haven't. Uh, jo- Georgie recommended it to me. I think uh, Ray talked about it a lot. It's kind of about like basis. Like if you've heard, you know what synchronicity is? 
I guess I don't want to say I do. You're going to have to define it for me. <laughs> so it's like a meaningful coincidence is what it says. So it's like, okay, uh, you and I might be in the same situation. And so our, uh, the example I've been thinking of is my friend of mine passed away a couple months ago and he had, uh, I think it was a blue Jay tattooed on his leg and at his wake, a blue Jay flew by. Hey, so it's like, a, like a, one of those events that's like, to them, it has a lot of meaning, right? Like to, to you, to you, if you were happen to be there, you just, Oh, a blue Jay. But to them, it has that coincidental meeting. And they talk about this mathematical model of like the physics and how maybe, you know, we've been looking at things through a reductionist lens then that we don't think that this is a completely random act. It's not a causal act, but it's not completely random. But part of what they talk about is how like we look at things in this reductionist perspective and that like it's just the soluble fiber in the carrot. But you can't really like if you took all the parts of a carrot and put them, you know, in a blender, it wouldn't be the same thing as the whole. You know, the parts don't necessarily represent the whole. Yeah, a lot of a lot of the plant compounds, a lot of foods actually have multiple beneficial compounds. So when when I'm looking at a food, when I'm trying to build a diet or figure out what foods make sense, you're I'm taking a food and I'm taking all of its pros and all of its cons, at, at least that I'm aware of, right? Cuz I'm not omniscient on this stuff, but at least that I'm aware Pretty of close. and then I'm try <laughs> no, the more you the, the more you see what's like there, the more you're like, wow, there's so much more to know. Yeah. That's I think the like chronic the problem know, when you start know. getting into the stuff. Yeah. Well, the more you know, the more you don't know. And then the more you know, the more you know that you don't know. <laughs> that's the that's the big one. But the uh basically like you're gonna weigh all the pros and all the cons that you're aware of and then you're trying to construct a diet that maximizes the pros in multiple different areas and then minimizes the cons in multiple different areas so it's really like a strategic piece of well i know carrots aren't a great carb source so i'm not really going to use that for energy but i do know that the fiber and plant compounds have a beneficial effect on the microbiome okay so i'll incorporate carrots in the meal and then i'll have another source for carbs whether orange juice or dried mulberries or whatever the deal is. And then for fat, I can have, you know, maybe it'll be macadamia nuts because I don't do well with saturated fats and I'm trying to increase fiber and modulate the microbiome. And then I'll have a protein source, like a lean chicken or a lean steak or something like that. So I can get all these like nutrient, this density of nutrients in terms of proteins and then different peptide compounds that come out of the, the protein structure, but then also the micronutrients and whatnot. So there's like multiple different things and benefits that you can get from the individual foods. And if you go through PubMed, it's like, well, there's protein and there's like, oh, the proteins break down into these peptides mm. and then these peptides, oh, it lowers blood pressure, it blocks angiotensin converting enzyme, like and you start to see, wow, there's so much stuff going on that you're just not even like, we don't even know about, <laughs> or even like the opiate peptides and dairy or things like that. It's like, they actually compare them to morphine in some of the studies with, with rats, which is like, <laughs> that's crazy to think about. It, it is crazy. It's also the opposite side too. Where it's like, you just try and isolate these compounds and, and like, you know, more of it is inherently better, um, which is not usually the case. Not always the case. Um, yeah. What about like mushrooms? Mushrooms are uh, hit or miss. Um, and I, so, and it also depends on the mushroom. So there's a couple of things about mushrooms. I know this, this is all kind of, these are a little tangential from the weight loss topic, but <laughs> the, uh, it's all good. We'll get the, back to you. The mushrooms. Yeah. Yeah. No worries. The, the mushrooms contain uh, something called beta glucans. So the beta glucans is like a fungal cell wall component and it is a stimulus for the nervous, uh, for the immune system in 
in humans, all different types of animals. So it has an immunostimulating component. And then inside the mushrooms, there's like hundreds, I think it's hundreds of different medicinal compounds, as well as some toxic compounds. Like a lot of them do need to actually be prepared appropriately um, that and have all types of enzymatic function and adjustments to the microbiome and antimicrobial this and anti-anxiety, antioxidant, whatever, all these different components. Um, so I think they're, they're beneficial, but some people are sensitive, I think, to the immune stimulating component. And then some of the mushrooms do contain different fermentable substrates that may cause problems in different people's microbiome. And then some of the mushrooms, some of the medicinal components they have are really strong. So some people notice like in higher amounts of certain mushrooms, they get different symptoms. So as an example, like quite a few of the mushrooms, but in the peat sphere specifically, I'll mention this one because a lot of people are familiar with it. The white button mushrooms are pretty potent anti-aromatase or have different pretty potent or anti-aromatase compounds. Some of the other mushrooms also have pretty potent um, anti-5-alpha reductase compounds. And then some of the mushrooms like can actually inhibit cholesterol uh, production through HM, what's it, HMG-CoA. So that's the main enzyme that's producing or the for biosynthesis of cholesterol in the, in the body. So like in that circumstance, like I think you want to, I treat them as medicines. So mm -hmm. I have a, like if I, if I personally was dealing with cancer or something like that, I'm not saying these treat cancer, just like disclaimer there. But for me, I would consider looking at some of the beneficial effects of mushrooms like adjuvant or things like that, because they do stimulate the immune system and they do have all these other compounds that are adjusting cell replication and things along those lines. Um, so yeah, that's, there's like, I think of some of these things as medicines, yeah. a lot of the herbs yeah, I think yeah. of as medicine. So mushrooms, herbs, um, and then even some of the like, like guava leaves or like the rinds of some of the fruit are super high. Like, for example, there's a drug in Europe, it's called Daflon. It's a combination of diosmin and hesperidin. And what it does is it treats uh, venous insufficiency because the diosmin and the hesperidin have a toning effect or a beneficial antioxidant effect on the endothelium of the vasculature. And essentially hesperidin is extracted from like orange peels. <laughs> so a lot of the compounds in these, like some of these things that we actually throw away are super potent. Yeah. Or even here in the Philippines, mangosteen is a fruit that's uh, pretty available. It's like specific to Southeast Asia. And the purple rind of the mangosteen is super rich in these compounds called xanthones. And the xanthones have like, in some of the cell culture studies, pretty potent anti-inflammatory antioxidant like they're shown benefit against multiple cell like cancer cell lines things like that so there's really potent compounds in a lot of these different things and then the last piece just to beat the dead horse a lot of antibiotics and a lot of drugs that are currently on the market are compounds directly synthesized from bacteria or also from fungus so like the cephalosporin antibiotics are based on fungal compounds. So is the, um, the penicillin class mm -hmm. of antibiotics. And then the, some of the, uh, the potent immunosuppressants like cyclosporin and tacrolimus are all based on fungal compounds as well. That was great. <laughs> but so, all right, <laughs> fat loss, fat loss. So best types of exercise for fat loss. So, I mean, generally, I mean, I'll let you take it. <laughs> yeah. So the, let's see. For most, for like the everyday average person who just wants to lose some weight and doesn't really want to like go hard in the gym or anything like that, or like run, run like crazy, 
just walking on a consistent basis, like going for a 10 minute walk after meals or just like walking more, moving around more in general is probably more than enough to get people the fat loss that they want, especially if they dial their diet in. Like you don't need to do that much more um, if the other factors are arranged appropriately. If your diet is crap and you want to do like induce weight loss without drastically adjusting your diet, like you could try to out exercise your diet, but that's not going to be a good long-term strategy. Like it's not, it's not sustainable and there's problems hormonally for multiple reasons that will come with that. Um, so yeah, walking is, you know, good enough. The next level I would say after that is like just doing activities that require movement, general activity, but, uh, that you enjoy. So like it could be Muay for me, I like Muay Thai, I like basketball. So I do those types of things. You won't catch me. Yeah. You won't catch me, um, running on a treadmill ever. I absolutely hate and loathe the idea of the treadmill, but some people like running. So if you do like running and that is something that you want to do, I think that that's okay, but I would probably trend towards uh, making sure your volumes are appropriate. If you like sprinting, there's a way to organize sprinting. And then if you like longer running, there's a way to do longer running appropriately so that you don't damage your yourself. Cause there is super um, negative effects from like triathlons and things like that. People don't know about, but like, GI hemorrhaging, damage to the heart long term, like these are not good things to upregulate. But if you're gonna like go for, you know, a mile run or something like that, and just and you're keeping your heart rate at, you know, in zone two, which is like mm-hmm. the cardiovascular zone, like that probably has some benefit and probably isn't that stressful. But you know, some of the other like there is a level where you can do too much. So that's another thing is like. I would another thing always with exercise is making sure that you can handle the volume of exercise that you're doing. And even for me, like if I try to play basketball every single day and then also do a bodybuilding workout every single day, and I have a hundred sets of, of volume total across the week and I'm doing basketball, like I am not able to recover from that after a certain number of weeks, like it forces a deload earlier than I would like it to be. And so like those things are important to understand and keep in mind. Same thing with running volume, like running 30 miles a day or like putting 40, 50 miles on the body in a week. Like, yeah, not only it's not only about like damage to the GI system and also to like the heart and the stress hormones and whatnot, but like also recovering of the joints and damage to the joints, like running on pavement or things like that. Like there are problems with all these things. And it's important to understand all the different factors that go into that. So First tier walking next tier If you enjoy doing something, you know, Muay Thai, tennis, basketball, baseball, whatever the different sports are like, those can also be helpful. You don't have to do something boring. And then mm-hmm. next level, if you'd like running, there's a way to do running, organizing zone two effectively, knowing what the correct volumes are, knowing where your correct heart rate is. If you wanted to do sprinting, I bring sprinting in the same vein as weight training because it's the same type of stimulus, depending on the distances that you're running. And so there's a way you, if you're going to only focus on the sprinting stuff, I mean, some people I work with have, there's a way to structure that appropriately. Um, but if you're going to do sprinting and exercising, that's becomes very tricky because you're hitting similar pathways, um, multiple times in the week. And like the sprinting is a huge, like systemic fatigue inducing exercise, like, like a squat or a deadlift is a systemic fatigue inducing exercise. Whereas like a bicep curl is kind of whatever, like you yeah. can go do bicep curls every day. Um, so like un- knowing how to modulate, that's important. And then the last level would be 
body, bodybuilding, weight training, all that type of stuff. Now in for weight loss, if you really want to recomposition effectively, hands down, the best way to do it is high protein diet, at least from the research currently high protein diet plus modulating carbs and fats effectively. And then, and then, uh, bodybuilding weight training, like that is the best way to recomposition yourself, put on a bunch of lean mass and then also lower fat mass. Like if that's really what your ultimate goal goal is, then that's what I would do. Um, and, but again, setting it up appropriately is really important. And that's in terms of like looking at your intensity. So what, how many reps in reserve are you leaving on sets? And then also what are you doing with total volume per body part? And then across the whole week. And then also like, what does that volume look like? Are you hitting 10 sets per body part per week? And then say it's quads and that's squats, like probably going to be too much for most people and not necessary for that goal. Um, again, if you want to be, you know, Mr. Olympia, by all means, whatever works for you in that circumstance, especially with exogenous use and whatever else, like you can get away with a lot more, but for the natural, for a natural person who just wants to recomposition themselves, don't care about stepping on stage and just wants to look good without their shirt on or at the pool or whatever. Like you don't have to do that much to like do it effectively. Like the uh, effective stimulus doesn't have to be that high. Minimum. We're talking. Yeah. The next level is like you and I sitting here and waxing on like, you know, what's optimum volumes and how are you going to adjust the different volumes based on like how much does a row hit a bicep curl for your sets in the week and things like that. Like that's just another level. Those things get so nuanced too. It's like not even worth pissing apart because it's just like, you can't really quantify it. So it's like, we don't really have any good data on it. In my opinion, like we have general thought processes. Yeah. General Um, guidelines. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think a big thing that I don't know you, you haven't mentioned yet, but I think you talk about it a lot is that fat burning in terms of exercise doesn't necessarily increase the amount of fat you lose. So like, like certain types of exercise, so generally sprints, um, weightlifting uh, are both anaerobic. They tend to burn a lot of carbs. And I think that's tends to be beneficial for a number of reasons. And fat burning, I think is kind of a cheat code because, or walking, sorry, because it's, you're going to burn fat because, it, but it's not going to upregulate the stress hormones, the fat burning as it would in the marathon running in the long, low intensity, steady state kind of, you know, jogging, running, long distance cycling kind of things. Um, Do you, do you agree with that? Or what do you, what are your thoughts on that? No, I personally am not a massive fan of like, like, I don't like any of the zone stuff myself. Like, I would rather go play basketball or do Muay Thai. Like Mm -hmm. I'm not going to run. I'm not going to wear the heart rate monitor. I don't care that much about it, but I also, I can maintain my weight in an appropriate level just with weight training and dieting and then doing those other things or going for walks with my wife. Like those are, that's more than enough. And I think most people can get away with just that. And they don't have to consider that the zone two stuff unless they like that and they want to go and do that and get into all that. And some clients that I work with have, and I'm happy to accommodate with that because every individual preference, but the marathon stuff is a problem. The, um, I don't think that the zone two stuff is that stressful overall. If it's done appropriately, just like, I don't think the bodybuilding stuff is that stressful overall if it's done appropriately. So it's, it's really important as is your diet dialed in, is your stress managed, is your sleep going well, are your micronutrients hit? Like, and then how are you feeling? And then on top of that, like what other things you have going on exogenously or externally in your life, you know, 
are you playing two hours of basketball all day and then trying to do a leg workout? And that's, you're probably going to overreach quick on that. And even like um, stress at work too. I feel like people don't factor that. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'll give an example. When I was working in the ICU during COVID, <laughs> I wasn't going to go to the gym six days a week. I couldn't, I yeah. literally could not handle the stress. And I, I would, I tried to do it at first and I just had to, after that, like I just was on the couch for a whole week. I couldn't do anything. I could go to work and go on the couch because I completely crashed my system working, you know, 50 hours a week in the hospital, doing my full-time coaching and then trying to go work out, you know, six days a week. Like it's just, those things are really important. I think that one of the most important things with exercise hands down is managing your fatigue and stress from the exercise on top of your current context. Some people I work with, with chronic fatigue and things like that, like they're not exercising at all. Like a walk is difficult for them. And so it has to be adjusted to the individual. And the way to really tone that is to like, first of all, the individual has to gain a sense of awareness. And then you can also use the baseline again from the research to kind of get an idea of like, where's this ballpark and then tweak it to that individual to figure it out. So that that's really the best way to go as far as figuring out the exercise and the stress and things like that. Again, I don't think zone two is that stressful on a lot of people, you know, particularly healthier people. And then I also don't think the bodybuilding is that stressful on healthier people. And even for like, I've worked with quite a few older women who they like worried about bone mass and they were relatively healthy, but they wanted to lose weight and stuff like that. You could go into the gym if then they wanted to work out. This is, <laughs> I didn't force them. You have to go to the, do bodybuilding workouts, but they could go into the gym and they could do a workout and just use the machines. Yeah. Like you, you could just do a machine circuit and you could do a minimum effective volume for a new trainee. And that is good enough to maintain their bone mass, to help prevent sarcopenia in the long run and to help induce weight loss for them or help them not weight loss, but recomposition, adjusting fat and lean tissue amounts. Like with dietary adjustments and everything else, that's more than enough for, for most people. You don't have to go to the extreme, like cardio in the morning, weight workout in the evening, six days a week. Like if you want to be a limp, Mr. Olympia, like fine. If you want to step on stage, fine. But for healthy people, people who just want to get healthy, you know, that's, that's, you don't have to go to that level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Machines of the wave. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, and I think there's also a big difference and, uh, between, you know, the zone two cardio when you're like, <sighs> versus like, if you can, I like, there's a Mexican running tribe. People like to cite that does all nasal breathing. They never open their mouth and they're going on these long distance runs. I think that's probably almost like a CO2 bath for them in, internally. Like they just are, have probably crazy upregulated CO2 levels. So I think that's metabolically probably very different from the average, you know, marathon or like very stressful long and distance. You about. shouldn't on zone two, you shouldn't really be like huffing and puffing okay. through your mouth at all. Like it, the intensity, because a lot of people are like, oh, I'm going to go do cardio. And then they go run like a maniac on the hour for a treadmill. Like that's not zone two. That's just, I don't know what that is. <laughs> that's not zone two. Zone two is literally like keeping your heart rate. I think it's between 60 and 70%. It's either 60 or 70 or 70 or 80. I think it's 60 to 70% of your max heart rate um, for an ex for extended period of time. So if it like could be a brisk walking pace and you should technically like the metric or heuristic people used to talk about it is like, you could have a conversation while doing zone two. Okay. Like you're not out of breath. You're not supposed, you're not supposed to be getting out of breath in zone two. Then you're moving into higher zones and the, the higher zones you move into, 
the longer you stay in those higher zones, the more stress it is in the body. Whereas like the zone two stuff is not supposed to be stress. It just builds a cardiovascular base. That's okay. it. It's not a, that's, and that's a very, like, this is why it's really important to know like what your parameters are with zone, with that zone two stuff for people doing this type of cardio. And I think a lot of bodybuilding coaches actually prefer that their clients go and do low intensity, steady state zone two type cardio, because it is not taxing on the system. Like the fad now is this, uh, what's it? The, the Tabata protocols and like the interval training and stuff. I think that stuff is way more taxing on, especially with the clients that I've seen, like, Oh, I'm doing this interval training. I can work out in 15 minutes. And it's like, yeah, that's a really hard 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not like, you know, the 20, the 30 minutes for a walk or a hike, it could be, that could be zone two by itself and like not stressful. And like, it could be enjoyable and you could see different things, whatever, like that is enough by itself. You don't have to go and like do all these crazy jump squats and burpees and kill yourself and want to vomit and all the stuff to lose weight. Like it's not necessary. Okay, cool. Um, last topic for the day. And I had one other question I wanted to ask you. Uh, we talked about useful supplements for fat loss. Okay. Yeah. So First things first, most like most basic stuff, making sure that you are dialed in on micronutrients is really important, especially if you're like, if you are, so say you're really cutting calories or something like that. Say you're doing the bodybuilder cut. You really want to dial in your micronutrients because it's going to be hard to organize a diet in some of those circumstances to hit the appropriate amount of micronutrients. And that could be impairing your, like a lot of things as well particularly under stress, because in stressful situations, you start to adjust your cycling of different nutrients. Like you can start wasting nutrients and upregulations of certain hormones. So say, for example, you upregulate glucocorticoid signaling, which hits mineral corticoid receptors. And now you start to waste potassium and and save sodium. Like, so you can get wasting in those circumstances or in stressful situations, you can start to lose magnesium with adjustments in thyroid hormone and ATP production. So like there's multiple things that can go on from that perspective. So it's important to, to make sure that's topped off. And then even for healthy people, like it'll improve your weight loss. If micronutrients are dialed in appropriately with diet and then also supplementation. So be so that you can actually oxidize substrate appropriately through the mitochondria. You don't have any B vitamin deficiencies blocking things. Yeah. You have enough minerals to keep the different stress hormones and, and adaptive hormones low, all that type of stuff. Like that's going to be important. And generally the fewer calories you eat, it's going to be harder and harder to meet that micronutrient demand, right? Even if you eat crap foods, you're eating 4,000 calories a day, you might be pretty close, but if you're cutting, you know, you're eating 2000 calories or 1200 calories, it's almost impossible to eat that much. It, yeah. It's, it's, extreme. <laughs> It may be, I think it's actually impossible to hit all of your targets with a whole foods diet on like 1200 calories. I think it may actually, cause I don't know how you, like you'd have to use some on a whole foods diet. No, I don't think you could do it. Like you would have to use some very specific foods that probably wouldn't be considered whole foods to hit that target. So yeah, on a super low caloric dieting, like you're going to cause nutrient deficiencies unless, or be at risk for nutrient deficiencies, at least unless you organize things appropriately. Now, so after you make sure that all of that is dialed in, the next things that you could consider um, would be using things like aspirin and coffee and things like that. Um, the famous stack was ephedrine, caffeine, and aspirin. So Which is just ephedrine general, is obviously, right? yeah. So ephedrine is illegal now because 
using high doses of it causes cardiovascular problems. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I'm not saying to use ephedrine, but coffee helps to boost metabolism a bit. Um, and then aspirin has an uncoupling effect. And then the other thing that can help people, depending on what's going on hormonally, is thyroid hormone. If you are dealing with hypothyroidism, can be super helpful for well resistant weight loss. So those basic nutrient stuff, you know, vitamins and minerals, making sure diets organized, making sure activities organized, more than enough for most people to get where they want to get. And it's just consistency after that. I know that's boring to hear. Mm-hmm. I don't have you know like fat loss two thousand stack, um, but like. For most people, doing that is more than enough, and it decreases your your possible negative outcomes by like playing with other things you may not need to play with. After that, coffee or caffeine can be helpful. Uh, aspirin can be helpful, and then thyroid hormones can be helpful for people who are dealing with hypothyroidism, um, and particularly if hypothyroidism with resistant rate, weight loss. Dialing that stuff in can make a huge difference, and this is in the context of natural people, right? Like. There are other things if you're not going to be natural that can definitely help you lose weight in a like a very quick fashion and help you build lean mass at the same time. There's also risks to using those things. But yeah, there's like (laughs) there's crazy things you could do with that stuff. But for most people who are trying to get healthy, who don't want to expose themselves to unnecessary risks and they just want to get a healthy body weight and maintain it. It's that it's it's diet making sure nutrients are covered, sleeping well, managing stress, and then getting appropriate activity in depending on, you know, your tolerance to it and what you, what you're interested in and doing. Mm-hmm. What is your thought process on, you know, general thyroid supplementation, maybe not for weight loss, but you know, I had I talked to Keith Littlewood and O'Ray um, are generally, I believe fans of using um, thyroid, let's say strategically to kind of offset maybe some of the stresses in life and uh, some of the environmental pollutants. Do you think that can be, you know, and according to from what I've seen, it seems to be like there's a, to a point, obviously, there's not a lot of detrimental side effects to some T3 supplementation. Um, maybe the long term there is. What, what are your thoughts? From a <laughs> disclaimer perspective, I cannot prescribe anyone thyroid and this isn't anyone's medical advice. Yeah. If it was me, I think that thyroid, I'm not, so in all, in transparency, I'm not currently using thyroid. I'm I, I have used it in the past. I did like how I felt on it and like the functions that it gave me, et cetera. And it definitely induces weight loss if you're healthy and functioning well and you use it appropriately. Like I was able to get, so for me, I tend to naturally be lean. I, I can stay closer to 10% on a 10, 12% on a regular basis without like having to, I manage my diet, obviously, right? This is what I do, mm-hmm. but without having to like try to lose weight. Um, I actually have to try to gain weight and that's just disposition. But thyroid was just like, I was just like, got lean without (laughs) doing anything different, just added it. And I was like, boom, but other things were already on board for me to allow that to work. So can thyroid for people who aren't necessarily hypothyroid by traditional standards, because there's a huge difference. And I'll talk about that in a second. Can that make a difference in their weight loss? hundred percent. It 100% can, and bodybuilders use thyroid to induce weight loss. Well, <laughs> in deficits and using anabolics and all this other type of stuff, like that is one of the drugs or hormones that is used to do that. Now, with that said, the way they do it, I think, is dangerous, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend going that route, or I personally wouldn't go that route. The dosing of thyroid, it shouldn't, in my experience for myself, 
is I don't like just T3 alone. I like the combination of T3 and T4 or a natural desiccated thyroid source that's legitimate. Um, the baseline amount of T4 is helpful to keep a consistent level and then dosing T3 consistently throughout the day multiple times because of the short half-life allows for that consistent uh, T3 level to stay to, or the T3 level to stay at a higher average level instead of like just taking the morning and it just drops and the rest of the day you don't have a lot of t3 so it can be super helpful from that perspective in my experience this isn't a recommendation mm -hmm. for anybody to go and do it because legally it's a prescription and all that good stuff um as far as the the pop people who are struggling uh, but don't have a at a specific thyroid diagnosis so in the united states currently most thyroid problems are diagnosed purely off tsh which is just not, a, that doesn't mean anything. If your TSH is high, then yes, you are hypothyroid. But if your TSH is low, it doesn't mean that you're not hypothyroid. TSH is not the active thyroid hormone. T3 is the active thyroid hormone. And low calorie diets, cutting and metabolic dysfunction all adjust T3 metabolism, conversion of T4, the inactive thyroid hormone, into the active hormone, thyroid hormone T3, and then rerouting of T4 metabolism into reverse T3, which actually has this by multiple mechanisms, a degree of an antithyroid effect. So in those circumstances, coming out of that hole and adjusting lifestyle, adjusting diet, adjusting exercise, and then possibly using something like a thyroid supplement can actually move the needle a lot faster for a lot of people and get them to a better spot. The caveat with that as well is that you, and for me, I make sure that I always have my foundation solid as far as diet and nutrients and whatnot before I start to try to push the gas pedal on metabolism because in order for thyroid to work, it basically upregulates the ability of the mitochondria to produce energy and increases mitochondrial number and all this type of stuff. But in order to do all those things, you need substrate to build new mitochondria. You need micronutrients to actually use the substrate in the mitochondria in the Krebs cycle. And then you need substrate to produce that energy. And to, and to produce the extra heat that the thyroid hormone does through uncoupling and things like that. If you don't have those things on board or you have nutrient deficiencies or you don't have enough substrate or you're running a chronic deficit, a lot of times you get really bad symptoms, anxiety, panic attacks, insomnia, palpitations, things like that. And that's, there's thyroid hormone adjusts sensitivity at the cellular level to the adrenergic system. So the sympathetic nervous system, the catecholamines, norepinephrine, epinephrine. And so if you're running on that stuff chronically and then you just, Oh, I'm going to throw a T3 on top of that. Like you can have a really bad time. And I've worked with quite a few people who tried that and then reached out to me and was like, yo, I, I tried this thyroid and I had to go to the ER because I had these palpitations and all this type of stuff. And it's um, again, like those people later on, on their own volition, <laughs> tried thyroid hormone and they had a way better response. But when they initially tried as like caloric deficit, nutrient deficiencies, eating foods that cause problems for them, not sleeping well under stress. And like, it was like, oh, well, thyroid will solve that. And it's like, mm, depends on the person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Got to be careful with that type of stuff. So yeah, that's, there's a, I guess to reiterate, I think thyroid, thyroid was helpful for me. I think thyroid can be helpful. It's not a recommendation for me by any means. Cars a prescription, see your doctor, all the good stuff. The <laughs> second piece <laughs> is that um, a lot of people are dealing with thyroid issues 
that if you look at their lab profile, it's clear there's a thyroid issue going on. If you look at TSH, T3, T4, reverse T3, a lipid panel, all that type of stuff, you could say, okay, there's clearly, plus if you understand their symptoms and maybe their, their waking temperatures or post-meal temperatures, you're seeing like, yeah, there's thyroid dysfunction here for sure. Um, but it won't be picked up by the Western medical system or the, the current medical system because they don't consider any of those things valid <laughs> to look at for thyroid. And then the last piece after that is if this, if somebody is considering thyroid, again, it's not a recommendation for me that you need to make sure, or I tend to make sure that the foundation is always solidified prior to introducing these higher level interventions to make sure that there's a much less of a risk of a negative outcome. That is good. Uh, medical, not medical advice. It's, um, <laughs> yes. Non-medical advice. <laughs> um, yeah, that was great. And so, um, actually I got one more question after this unrelated, but, and we've talked about this a decent amount. I think a lot of it has to do with how you lost the fat, but you've lost the fat. You got it to your ideal body weight. Let's say it's in a healthy range. How do you keep it off? Yeah. So there's multiple pieces that are really important in terms of keeping the body fat off on a consistent basis. So the first thing is, and I mentioned this before your mentality around how you're getting the weight loss off. Are, are the weight off? Are you going on a cut? Are you, you know, bro, I'm going to cut because I'm going to Vegas this weekend and I'm going to like not eat or, I, oh, I have a wedding coming up and I want to look good in my bridesmaid's dress. So I'm going to like take laxatives and starve myself for the next month so that I can like fit in the dress perfectly. That is not a mentality for consistent long-term weight loss. And that's a recipe for rebounding with weight gain after you've create metabolic dysfunction from like starving yourself for however long, like yeah. that, that actually will cause problems in the long run. Um, so the first thing is mentality. The mentality comes from I'm doing this to lose weight versus I am changing my lifestyle and like the way I live on a regular basis so that I can get to a healthy weight and then just maintain it. So it's, it's not this thing you're doing for a short period of time. It's this thing you're adjusting all of your, your lifestyle components and you're changing how you do things. You are creating an intelligent system that allows you to number one, like the food you eat, like your, how you feel and how you look in your clothes and all that type of stuff. And then also like get to that, that healthy weight and then maintain it and maintain it without having to like, you know, open my fitness pal every day and like chronically like track all of your calories mm -hmm. and your macros. It's for a lot of times what I do with my clients is I set up, I, I use heuristics. So what I mean by that is like, just ways of thinking about things, different strategies. When I go to a restaurant, how can I structure a meal at a restaurant? Boom. All I, all you need to know is that. And you're probably, you're get 80 to 90% of the way there. You're good to go. And if I'm, if I have my meal in a day, like most people tend to eat the same things day in and day out. Do you have to eat the same exact thing every day? No, you can create variety in there if you want, but it's like, I know how my daily structure is going to go. Okay. In the morning I have some type of egg, based thing and fruit and coffee, or I make some type of shake, something along those lines. At lunch, I have chicken and then at dinner, I have fish, boom. And then in each of those meals, maybe some type of vegetable, some type of fruit or starch, and then boom. So I have this idea of how my meals are gonna be structured. And then I also have this idea of how I'm gonna structure my meals across the day. It's not that you memorize everything you're gonna do, but you just have these rules that you create for yourself or these, this these, uh, I call them heuristics, but basically these ways of thinking about how I'm going to go about this and you have a general plan going into it. So building that out allows for consistency and maintenance for people instead of like, if it's, if it's too hard to do regularly, yeah. 
And it's like all this insane planning, like it's not sustainable. No one's going to, no one can track in my fitness pal for their entire life and constantly like minus and, and, and adjust their and calories and you macros. To, to work. Yeah. 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 It's just, it's not feasible. So creating strategies that work for you that you can figure. And then also having another thing besides the heuristics is having the like backup systems in place. So it's like, okay, I didn't cook and I like need to have food this for work today. Like, what do I do? It's like, well, you know, I grocery shopped and I have a bunch of beef jerky and like tuna and, um, you know, I have dried fruit and I have macadamia nuts and I have chocolate and I have some juice in the fridge. Like I can, I can eat from this. Like I'm good to go. Yeah. Or I can stop at, you know, Chipotle and I can get some guac and some chicken and then I have some juice and I, and that will be my meal. I'm solid. Um, so like having those things in mind, like building that out allows you to stay within that particular range. And then, uh, if the thing goes awry, you have solutions for that. So heuristics, backup plans, and also mentality. So make, this is a lifestyle change. This isn't just something I'm doing now. The next thing is, um, making sure like testing things out and finding things that work specifically for you whatever works for me, like my anal retentive plan on my diet and my exercise and all this type of stuff, like for another personality may not work. So like, I'm not going to try and graph that onto them. They need to figure out what is going to work specifically for them, test it out, run it, and then refine it and refine it. It's an iterative process. It's a process that's adjusting over time. It's not something that like you just get, you know, ebook 1000 and ebook 1000, like everybody can do the same thing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's that's the, it's principles as opposed to like, this is the perfect plan. I made it and everybody can use this. Um, and then the, the last couple things I'll say here is, um, is really, yeah, that that's probably the, the, the biggest basics of it overall i don't want to go too much further because like i'll go down tangents but that's like the main things for sustainability yeah perceive think to act as ray pete would say (laughs) um yeah and i think the kind of the moral of the story for fat loss is if you have to stress to get there you're probably going to have to stress to stay there it's kind of i feel the uh large moral of the story and you know a sustainable fat loss you probably shouldn't be stressing to get there if you are doing things right, your fat loss shouldn't feel like absolute torture. Mm-hmm. Most people that I work with, when they have their weight loss, they're like, oh, I just lost weight. Like okay. I, even before before this podcast, I had a call and the lady I was I was speaking with is like, you know, I didn't really watch my weight on the scale. But, you know, in in February, I weighed a hundred and 90 pounds. And now I weigh 175 and I don't know what happened. And it was just, she just put the pieces in place and then she just maintained it because she, once you, once you see that the weight loss was going, like I'm losing a pound per week on average and I'm doing the right things. Like I like people to check in and make sure the trend is moving in the right direction. You don't have to weigh yourself every day, but maybe just check in periodically. So you have a trend and empirical piece of information that you can say, okay, I'm moving in the right direction. But she just, we put the plan in place. It was something that she was sustainable for her. She liked the food she was eating. She didn't feel like she was super restricted. Her nutrient base recovered. And then her activity was like, she liked to play tennis and she liked to go on walks and garden with her husband. And like that, that was fine. So like, and it fit, it fit with her lifestyle. So she just like was able to maintain it. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is like something that's important is that you don't have to do all of these changes today. 
you just need to make one change today and then one change tomorrow and one change the next two days or whatever the deal is. And you stack habits instead of instead of like building out the master plan, obsessing over making it perfect and then failing at implementing it. Like it's a step by step process of putting in these these habits and slowly changing things instead of like, boom, here's this, you know, cause I, when I have a client, I'll go through a whole plan with them. And like, this is what we're going to do over the next, however long. And it's like, these are the steps we're going to work through. And they're like, do I have to memorize all this now? I was like, no, right now you just need to make sure that when you have a meal, you have a protein, a carb, a fat and a fiber, and that's it. And then like focus on that for the next four days. And then that don't worry about yeah, anything yeah. else. <laughs> yeah. Basically just get the ball rolling. You know, you start with a little pebble and you keep going and you know, the inertia keeps us going and then you can eventually move boulders. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that's really important is you don't just like stop a bad habit. Like it's it's like just stop smoking. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's not how it works. It's here's something you can do instead. So here's your, this is whatever these, whatever somebody's doing, say they're eating, you know, they come home and they binge at night because they didn't eat all day long. It's like, that is a coping strategy because they didn't eat all day long. So the solution there is not to just like, you need to stop binging. That's why you're gaining weight. It's like, no, let's set up a, let's set up a day so that you like a meal so that you can realistically eat in a day that accommodates your busy schedule or whatever you have going on in your life. Eat throughout the day. You're number one, you're not going to be hungry to binge at night, but if you are hungry to binge at night, here's the things, here's the things that you binge on. So you replace the problematic things, you give them another option, and then you also fix whatever the upstream situation is. And then when people have other things they can go to, to cope with instead of food or drugs or alcohol or, or cigarettes or whatever the different things are, um, or even in their general daily life, like if they have something that can replace a habit that's not working for them, that's that does work for them and also solves that problem. That's they're not people don't have a problem shifting over to that. They're like, oh, wow, I feel so much mm-hmm. better. I I drink my grape pomegranate cranberry juice mix with taurine and glycine in it at night and I put it in a wine glass. Not only does it chill me out, my liver and my gut feel better and I'm losing weight now that I'm not slamming wine every night. And it's like, yeah, that (laughs) you're probably going to feel better that way. So that type of habit switching, I think makes a huge difference for people and allows for sustainability versus like, you just need to stop drinking, like wagging the finger. It's like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Like, how are you going to stop? Like, what's this plan that we're going to do to stop? Yeah. That's great advice. Yeah. Make it easier, not harder. Okay. Last question I had. Unrelated to fat loss, if you have a second, I don't know if you need to run. Yeah, go ahead. No Um, problem. So uh, you mentioned before, and this is something that I've struggled with. I'm sure a lot of the listeners struggled with. um, This concept is, you know, and you're a lot, you know, a lot more than me and I envy your position. Hopefully you get there one day. But, you know, the more you know, the more you know, you don't know. How do you deal with that? How do you, you know, because there's such an overwhelming amount of information out there today. And, you know, every time you try and learn something new, it's like, holy crap, I don't know anything at all. How do you, what's your strategy? There's a couple of things around that. So for a long time, I did really struggle with it. And then there's two things that I I think were really helpful for me. I didn't want to work with people for a long time. Like Jay actually had to convince me for a really long time to work with people and get into this because I always felt like I didn't know enough. And then I had a, a mentor that I, that I worked with for a while. Um, he's actually a really good friend now. But one of the things he told me, he was like, do you think what you know right now can make a difference in somebody else's life. 
Like, do you think you know enough to drastically make a difference in other people's lives right now? And I was like, yeah, I could probably change quite a few things and make and help like quite a few people in different ways. And he's like, then it is like, it is selfish for you to not help people. Like it is selfish for you to not use your knowledge to help people. And then worse is that if you don't go out there and like make a difference and like try to help people with this stuff, you won't be able to learn and see how other people are responding with your information and things that you're doing. So it was like, though that piece of advice, like that's where I was like, okay, that's, that's a game changer for me. Like he's a hundred percent, right? Like I know enough that I can make a difference. I don't know everything. Yeah. Like that was for me, that was huge. And then the second piece that I came to is like, for me, I sat down and I like this, this kind of came over time. It wasn't related to that, but, um, I sat down. I was like, what do I actually like doing in life? Like, what do I really enjoy doing? And for me, it's like simple things. <laughs> so I like working out. I like going to the gym. Like I just, that brings me joy. And then I like eating good food. And the other thing is I like learning. Like those are the three things that I can sit here and say, like, I really like doing those. And I look forward to that. And so when I think about that, there's so much that I don't know, I'm like, wow, I'm so excited. Cause I have this time and the energy and like, I have things that I can do. Like I have a purpose to continue to learn and build things and, and move forward from that perspective. And that is like, it actually can't, instead of being an impediment for me in the sense of like, Oh, I'm just never going to know anything. I'm not going to know as much as this guy or that guy. It's like, no, like that guy knows a lot. Well, where did he get his information? How did he learn his stuff? Like, can I learn from the stuff he's putting out there? Can I add it to my stuff? And, oh, wow, there's this, there's that. Like every time I find new pieces of information, it's like, it's exciting. It's like, wow, this is a new piece of the puzzle. Let me dive in and figure this out. Um, so yeah, so it became, that became like a purpose for me is like, I need, I want to learn more things and understand more things and so that I can like create plans and create under understandings and principles so that I can actually make a difference for people and take people who are super sick and turn their lives around so that they can go and do their own stuff too. Cause most people, most people that I work with, once they start to get better, they stop thinking about like all this health stuff. And it's like, Oh, well there's all these things I wanted to do. And it's oh, like, if you can have more people who are actualizing themselves and then like figuring out what they're interested in and making change to their lives and going from there, like a lot of people's problems is getting the foundation, right? So once you get the foundation, right, it opens the door for them to go do their stuff. Like, I don't know. For me, that was a, that was a huge motivator. Those, those two things, yeah. learning new things. And then the fact that I did have the information to help people. There's a famous quote. Yeah, that was awesome. Thank you for that. Um, there's a famous quote from Joshua Wakens. Yeah, no problem. He, uh, you ever heard of Joshua Wakens? He was like a grand, chess grandmaster. It was like some child prodigy. He wrote the art of learning. It's a really incredible book. I'd I highly, think I have actually incredible book, the art of learning, highly recommend reading it. And one of the last lines, it's like, there's very, I could pull up the quote, but there's rarely ever this like mysterious skill that you're missing to that between you and like, you know, LeBron James, but rather a profound mastery of the underlying skill set that allows you to go and look to other things, right? So he doesn't have to think about dribbling so he can see the court a thousand times faster. You can perceive all this other information. So then it's kind of what you were alluding to. It's like, if you free, most people don't want to talk about health. They don't really care about health until their health fails. So if you can get them to that point where they can, be healthy enough and maintain a good weight, then they can really do and go and see what they want to do with their life. And that's, that was awesome. Yeah. That's a, I, and again, I, a lot of this is foundation. So people getting their foundations, right. 
And that'll get them to their healthy weight. That'll get them the 80% of the way there where they need to go or 90% of the way. If there's another 10 or 20%, you know, like maybe some people need help. Some people solve it with, without, you know, some people I work with, it's not, it's like two or three calls. We get the foundation right and they're, they're better. Like, it's like, all right, Mike, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Pleasure working with you, like time to move on. And it's like, that's perfectly fine. But getting that foundation right allows people to move to that next step. So they're not thinking about, oh, what is the best meal? What is the best this? What is the best that? It's like, I know how I'm going to eat. It works for me. This is good to go. Like, I feel good. Everything's improving. I'm functioning well. If I maintain this, I'm good. And now I can focus on, you know, I want to do this in business. I want to do this with my art stuff, or I want to get involved in this particular uh, field or get my PhD here, whatever it is like it'll allowing people to do that is, is, you know, for me, I like seeing that. I think it's yeah. great. And then I also like fixing things. <laughs> yeah. 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 That was awesome. Well, thanks Mike. That I think uh, about wraps it up. I think we covered most of what you need to know for fat loss. Definitely not everything, but uh, where can everyone find you? Yeah. So, uh, I do a podcast with Jay, Jay Feldman, uh, the, the energy balance podcast. You can find me on that podcast. Good. No, I said, uh, the balance in, uh, the balance yeah. of energy balance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I have, a I have my own YouTube channel. It's Mike Fave NP. Um, I have my own website. It's Mike Fave NP.com. And yeah, those are, we were doing the energy balance, not the energy balance, the bioenergetic helpline, but I don't know if that's going to continue. So it's really just going to stay at, at the energy balance in my YouTube channel. Sounds good. Yeah. Highly recommend everyone check out Mike's Instagram, YouTube, everything. It's all a great wealth of information. Mike's a, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you guys for tuning to the Thermo Diet Podcast. I hope you guys all enjoyed this and found it useful. <laughs> Have a good one. Peace. <laughs>